hey, I got a hockey record. I took my skate off and tried to stab somebody, and I'm the only guy who ever did that. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. The spinning, spinning, who's he going to go after? The puck drops and Bob Tyner goes right to King Flaxenfeld. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. This is Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. So welcome to episode 49. Uh, Well, yes, it's numbered episode 49. And it's actual episode 65. So just, I know some some people poke fun at me and I absolutely 100% deserve it. Um, when I do the episodes that have multiple parts, I, I guess what I should have done was it, give them their own individual number, but, um, I just kept saying like episode one, part one, episode one, part two. So while this would be the 65th episode, it's episode 49. So you can call it 65. You can call it 49, whatever you call it. I'm just glad that you've joined me here today. My guest today is Drew Fatta. Drew was a great guest. And how this interview came about was, um, I don't know, maybe a month ago, two months ago, when I was posting um, the uh, Bridgeport stuff, like uh, who was on the team every year. Uh, One of the years, I think uh, maybe his first year there or his second year, I don't remember which one, but on one of the years, uh, Drew actually answered the tweet with the quote that I played at the very beginning of the episode from Happy Gilmore. And when I read it, I thought it sounded familiar. But then I'm like, I don't know, maybe he really did do that. So when I replied, I had mentioned, hey, maybe you want to come and talk talk about it on the show. And then he, uh, I sent him a message and he said, oh, that's just a line from Happy Gilmore. And I said, I knew it sounded familiar, but... I would still love to have you on the show to talk about your career, and he was uh, very cool and agreed to do it, and uh, we did it over uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, He's a very busy guy uh, up in the Sioux, but uh, he gave me all the time I needed, and uh, I really am so happy with the way the interview came out. Um, This is a perfect example of one of the reasons why I love doing this show is because it enables me to connect with guys that... I've never really had a chance to speak to before. So 
you know, I've done interviews with, you know, Dean Ewan and everybody that knows me or knows the show knows that Dean is basically a brother to me. He's, he's my brother from another mother for lack of a better phrase. That phrase drives me crazy, but it's probably the best way to say it. Um, he's my best friend. He's my longest tenured friend. Um, I've known him forever. And, you know, I've known guys like Mick Vakoda for a long time and Mike McWilliam, uh, Paul Cruz, Jim McKenzie, Jason Strudwick, uh, a lot of the guys that have been on the show, I've been friends with for decades. And then a guy like Drew Fatta, who I never had the opportunity to meet in person or have a conversation with at some point in uh, in my hockey fandom, uh, thanks to social media, one of the few good things about it. It allows me to reach out to a guy like Drew, and uh, I, I think it sounded great. You know, I think the uh, I think the interview came out great, and he was really uh, uh, forthcoming, and he had some good stories. So it's one of the things I really like about doing the show is that it opens up a whole world of possibilities, um, and so that's why you get interviews like you know I had with Trevor Gillies, and interviews like I had with Mick Vakoda, Dean Yu, and those guys guys I've known for a while. But then I get to speak to guys like Drew Fatta. Um, and any number of other, like Mike Cornell and Yannick Turcotte, those kind of guys where I've never had the opportunity to ever speak to before. And thanks to the show, I get a chance to speak to them and we get to go over their career. So um, it's one of my favorite things about doing the show. And, and, and this interview with Drew is just another example of that. And uh, I just want to thank Drew again for his time. It was uh, very cool of him to give me as much time as he did. So much in, So much time indeed that it's a two-part episode so i hope you enjoy part one thank you again for tuning in like i thank people every week because you know everybody and their dog has a podcast and um if you've chosen to spend a couple hours with me it really means the world to me um so thank you uh for coming back and if it's your first time listening this is more along the lines of the episodes that you're going to get unlike my last episode which is more of a rant i prefer to do the uh, the interview episode so this is more along the lines of what you're going to hear regularly so uh thanks for tuning in if it's your first time and thanks for coming back if it is not your first time a few things i'd like to ask of you could you please subscribe to the show and uh when you subscribe you get the episode immediately right now it is five minutes to one on sunday morning well sunday afternoon so when I'm done with this intro, when I piece everything together, I'm going to upload it right away. And if you're a subscriber, you will definitely get this right away. If you're not a subscriber, you're going to get it at some point Sunday night or some point on Monday. But it makes sense to subscri subscribe. Easy for me to say. It's free. Subscribe. You get the content earlier. And also, if you could like the show, rate the show, review the show, all that stuff brings uh, a higher profile to the show. Um, never started doing this to compete with the big boys. I kind of like my station here. I kind of like having uh, the following that I do. Sure, I would love to have the following of some of the bigger name shows, but uh, that's probably not in the cards for me based on the subject matter of my interviews, and I'm completely cool with that. It's almost It almost makes it more intimate. So, um, But if you could do that, rate the show, review the show, like the show, it just brings higher visibility. Uh, maybe there's some hockey fight fans out there that aren't aware of the show, some Islander fans out there that aren't aware of the show, and maybe it'll pop up into their suggestions. So if you could do that for me, I'd appreciate it. On social media, uh, I have two Twitter accounts, at Joe underscore Lizito and at Pod. On Facebook, facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles Podcast. And on Instagram, Coliseum underscore chronicles underscore podcast so 
my regular Twitter account is, you know, mostly nonsense, like everyone else's Twitter account. Uh, I don't take it too seriously. And um, the Kali Sinbin Twitter account is really more Islander Enforcer content. And that goes also for the Facebook and Instagram pages. So nothing too serious on any of these pages. And um, I'm sure you are tired of all the nonsense that you're getting on your usual social media. Um, I mean, how many times can you read uh, sheep and COVIDiots and, uh, you know, how many people posting pictures of themselves getting vaccinated and people saying they don't care if they're vaccinated. I mean, after a while, stuff gets kind of old, right? But uh, you won't get any of that on mine. You just get uh, stuff to probably make you forget about that thing. So, uh, you know, like it, follow it, friend me, whatever. I'll do the same right back. Maybe we could help build up each other's um, stuff. Whatever it is you're doing, I'm happy to like your page, like my page, and we could help each other out. So by now, you are well aware that I have merchandise available for sale. Some of you have purchased it, sent me pictures, and I absolutely love it. Anyone that would uh, support my show like that, I really appreciate it. If you are interested in Coliseum Chronicles, the Penalty Box merchandise, just scroll a little bit below the episode description on whatever platform you're listening to this on, and you'll see two links. One link is for the original logo, and one link is for the alternate logo. Same beautiful face, different fonts. I love both of them. That's why I offer both of them. And uh, actually, last week, I was wearing uh, the shirt, one of the shirts, and uh, I had two people two days in a row say to me, hey, that looks like you. So uh, there you go. So that is uh, the, the merchandise is available via those two links. And every week, I do a listener-exclusive discount. So for the following week, this week, ending on May 3rd, if you're interested in Coliseum Chronicles, the Penalty Box merchandise, use code FATA20, F-A-T-A-2-0, and you will get 20% off any of the items in either of the Coliseum Chronicles, the Penalty Box merchandise store. That's FATA20. So go for it. Use it. Anyone that buys anything, thank you very much. I, I love the support means the world to me. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think someone out there would be wearing a, uh, a shirt with my likeness on it. So, um, so thank you very much. And the thing I love most about the shirts is obviously the logo. Logo was drawn by local Long Island artist Joe Marisich. He is a wizard, an artistic wizard, an artistic genius. You've heard me tout him every episode that I do, and uh, I'm happy to do so. You can see Joe's art at Graphics Joker on Twitter, or you can reach him at loudegg.com. Joe is available for hire. Go on his Twitter, go on his Facebook, see the kind of stuff he does. And uh, next art project you have, definitely reach out to him, hire him. You will not be disappointed. So, one of the things I'm going to discuss this week before we get to the episode are milestones. There's been several milestones since the last time we spoke, and one of them is my pal, Darren, the host of the 4th Line Voice podcast. Darren recently hit 100 episodes. I think he said that it's actually more than 100 because of his old website. I don't know if he actually counted and gave the exact number, but I guess unofficially official, he hit 100 episodes. And his 100th episode was uh, not really a rant episode. It was a solo episode. Um, 
the episode before that was uh, an amazing two-part interview with Zach Fitzgerald. Uh, really, really great stuff. Uh, Zach was awesome, except for the one part where he said he was almost an Islander. He could have been an Islander. Uh, unfortunately, Brent Thompson had reached out to him, I think, the day after he signed with the Flyers. I think that was the Flyers, but uh, would have been awesome to see Zach in the blue and orange. But the um, the two-parter with Zach Fitzgerald was excellent. And I just want to congratulate Darren. 100 episodes is nothing to sneeze at. So whether I'm at episode 49 or episode 65, um, it's a lot of work. And, and Darren and I do very similar shows. And I kn- I've known Darren a very long time. I know how passionate he is about the hobby, about hockey fighting in general. I know what he puts into his interviews, and if you listen to any of them, you'll know too. And um, I think he had said um, the average podcast lasts about seven episodes, which is mind-blowing. But he's done 100 episodes. I've listened to every second of every episode. And, um, you know, I don't know really what to say other than um, for myself, who appreciates the hockey fight game, the hockey fight hobby, Um, it's really brought me a tremendous amount of entertainment, a tremendous amount of joy. Um, and like I said, I have all the respect in the world for Darren, uh, because like I said, I know the effort that I put into my shows and I imagine that Darren is pretty much doing the same thing that I'm doing. And, um, and he did it first, he started it. Um, you know, so, uh, it's, it's just, um, you know, thank you, Darren, for the 100 episodes uh, your effort does not go unnoticed. Uh, also, I know sometimes, you know, trying to get guys on to do the interviews, that's a struggle in and of itself. And you just want to rip the hair out of your head. Uh, but you know what happens when you get a guy on the phone and they give you a great interview. It kind of makes all that stuff worth it. But uh, but it is a struggle at times. And I appreciate the fact that you persevere and you keep putting out this quality content. So um, hats off to you, buddy, for 100 and uh, I hope uh, for at least 100 more, if not more than that. But uh, congratulations again on uh, episode 100. And please, everybody, do yourself a favor. Go to Fourth Line Voice podcast, listen to the episodes, and uh, you will not be disappointed. They are uh, they're masterpieces. So definitely give them. And, and don't just listen to the interviews. Listen to the Shit Show Sunday episodes. Listen to the solo episodes. I love those episodes. So please... Go back and listen to his uh, catalog. He's had some amazing guests on there, and um, it's definitely worth your time. So definitely do that. Again, Darren, a tip of the cap to you for uh, number 100. Also, Darren has a YouTube channel, Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel. Uh, I want to say, I usually know this. I usually remember what he says, over 2,500 fights posted on there. And um, if you've watched the hockey fight on YouTube, chances are, it is on the Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel. But if you haven't, definitely go there and subscribe. This way you get the notifications when he uploads something. Another podcast I want you to give a listen to, the Bucket Drop Podcast with my friend Bobby Longress. Uh, Bobby's uh, put out episodes every Monday. Uh, quick episodes, uh, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, sometimes a little bit longer. Really just uh, going over maybe uh, the events of the week with some of the Canadian hockey teams. It gives you some betting advice. And, um, like I said, it's, it's, uh, the opposite of, uh, like my show and Darren's show where you're going to, you got to dedicate 
two to three hours. Uh, Bobby does these quick hit episodes. You can listen to it on your way to go get your coffee or something or way to go get lunch. Uh, you know, very good episodes. Uh, I'm a big fan of his show. He's a good dude. So uh, definitely uh, check out the Bucket Drop podcast. Bobby was also doing something with hats. Uh, Bucket Drop hats where um, a portion of the proceeds were going to um, victims of child abuse, I believe. Because he's not on Twitter anymore. So I used to access that tweet. But uh, I think it's victims of child abuse uh, were getting a percentage of the... Uh, percentage of the proceeds for the hats so maybe look for him on on his uh, facebook page and reach out to him the hats are high quality really good hats and i think they were like 25 bucks shipped and um i think everything above what he pays to produce the hats was going to child abuse victims so uh child abuse survivors i don't like calling them victims but uh definitely check that out the hats are good i have one myself uh one other thing i want to point out if you're on my social media you'll notice that i've been tweeting or uh, yeah tweeting something every day uh, it's a GoFundMe, my friend Steve, uh, the uh, the hockey fight rain man. Like this guy is unbelievable. The way his memory works, I, I it's incredible. He just has the most amazing recollection uh, of everything. Um, he could tell you what Glenn Cochran ate for breakfast uh, the night that he fought Nick Fatiu on a Wednesday in the second period, a minute in. Like whatever it is, he remembers it, and. There, uh, if you're a hockey fight fan, you no doubt have ventured to the Drop Your Gloves website where you saw fight cards and videos and highlights. And for whatever reason, the guy who ran that website just decided to shut it down. And you can still get some fight cards on the Wayback Machine. Uh, I know that is it's like rolling the dice when you when you go to click on a name and you hope it's on the Wayback Machine. Because, like, for someone like myself, someone like Darren, uh, it definitely helps us having those fight cards readily available. And not all the guys are on there. My uh, upcoming interview that uh, I hope to record this week, the gentleman's fight card is not on there. It made it a little more difficult. But um, I, I muddled through. I got through it. But it's really nice to have that resource available. And I know a lot of players and ex-players were on there watching videos of upcoming opponents. It really was a great site. I mean, I was never one for the um, the voting and the descriptions because you had a lot of homerism on there. But uh, I used it primarily for the fight cards. And uh, Steve is trying to build a bigger, better, better drop your gloves. Uh, he's been in touch with some, I guess, web designers, website builders, like legit ones, not... Uh, not like these uh, five and dime ones. And uh, it's going to run about $10,000. So he is looking uh, to raise money to build that site. Uh, I know Darren has offered uh, Bob Probert prints. Um, I think uh, my buddy John in England was uh, offering to uh, send you DVDs in exchange for a donation. Uh, so uh, I I don't, I don't have anything to offer you. I, I can only tell you that... Uh, I've donated 50 bucks so far. I try to donate a little bit every couple of weeks. And uh, if you have five bucks and you could donate it, 10 bucks, whatever it is, um, it'll definitely help. It seemed like it was stagnant for a while. And then uh, Darren went on a little bit of a tirade and um, it seems like some donations are, uh, are coming in. So <clears throat> I think we're a little shy of halfway to the 10,000. But again, please check out my Twitter feed, either of the Twitter feeds. The link is there. There's a better description of what Steve's trying to do on there. And uh, I, I promise you, there's no better person to spearhead 
this project than Steve. It will be absolute perfection with this guy in charge. He is, uh, he is as thorough as it gets. So just please do me a favor and go on my Twitter feed and, and check out that link. And, uh, if you can donate a dollar, it's a dollar uh, less that, uh, that we have to, um, to get for this. So whatever you can donate would be great. Now the Bridgeport sound tiger slash New York Islanders fight report. I haven't spoken to you in a couple of weeks, I think. And, um, unfortunately I only have two fights to tell you about. They're both Bridgeport fights. So Bridgeport fight number eight took place on April 20th, 2021. Parker Watherspoon battled, excuse me, Alex Olivier Voyer of Providence. And yesterday, April 24th, Kyle McLean took on Paul Thompson of Hartford. Um, neither was anything to write home about, but uh, full marks to all four guys for keeping old school hockey alive. Uh, like I said, that brings the Bridgeport total up to nine fights for the year. Uh, Islanders still holding steady at four, four fights. The last Islander fight was the beginning of the month when Ross Johnston fought Samuel Moran. I am, uh, I'm not even going to go on about this. I, I am absolutely stunned, stunned with the way the, uh, schedule was this year where you're just playing your divisional rivals and you know your new divisional rivals uh eight times and the islanders have four fights total and one of them is oliver wallstrom i I, i'm speechless about that it just to me is just just a real sign of the times if there was ever going to be a year where i thought we were going to get I, I look. I don't expect to get the hundred fight seasons anymore. But if there was ever going to be a year where we were going to get maybe thirty, forty fights from a team, I really thought it was this year. And I, I mean, four fights now, and we're at the end of April. I don't know. I'm, what do they have? Ten games left. I can't see many. More. I mean, they played the Capitals two games in a row. Yesterday got a little chippy, but I don't know. It's a little disappointing. I'm not going to lie. I mean, teams in a bit of a tailspin now. Uh, you know, I still have faith they're going to make the playoffs, but last night there were plenty of opportunities to maybe do something. And, um, and again, I'm not the guy that says Matt Martin needs to be the guy to do it all the time. Uh, he doesn't, it could be anybody, but, uh, someone I really wish would have stepped up last night, but I, I don't even know what to say. Four fights, four, four fights this year. They have less fights than, uh, Kachuk on, uh, Ottawa. I think he has two more fights than the whole team. So I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm I'm just really shocked. I mean, I'm a, I'm I'm a little disappointed with the, the the way that things have gone in Bridgeport. Although they do have the numbers, they they have nine fights so far, and I think 19 games. You know, unfortunately, not too many heavyweight tilts. But I, I mean, listen, at least they're happening. Uh, but four fights for the Islanders so far. I I never would have saw this coming once they announced the schedule. So, um, listen, my disappointment all goes away if they raise the Stanley cup, but yeah, I'm not going to lie. This is a little disappointing. Just, uh, four fights on the year. Um, what are you going to say? But, uh, but anyway, let me, let me wrap this up here. There's uh, a couple of the, uh, couple of things I want to touch on. Obviously this is old news now, but, uh, Patrick Marlowe, he broke Gordie Howe's uh, games played record and social media was a buzz with people like, well, he's not Gordie Howe. You know, people were pissed. Like, what do you, why do you even give a shit? You know who would be the first person to tell you that Patrick Marlowe isn't Gordie Howe? Patrick Marlowe would be the first person to tell you that. Like, what's the big fucking deal that 
you, that Patrick Marlowe broke his record, sure, it would be nice if Gordie Howe held the record, but it doesn't in any way change Gordie Howe's legacy. Like, honestly, who gives a shit? So now he's number two in games played. All of a sudden, it's not like, well, he's not Mr. Hockey anymore. He's only number two in games played. I mean, the reaction to people on social media about Gordie Howe being nudged out of the number one spot was laughable. I don't understand it. I just don't get it. How about giving a guy like Marlowe credit for playing that many games? You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I don't know the selective outreach over certain things. I mean, it happens with real life stuff too, so I shouldn't be surprised, but I, I just got a laugh about uh, all these people so pissed off about Patrick Marlowe breaking that record. Jesus. I mean, uh, what the fuck? I don't get it. But anyway, uh, congrats to Patrick Marlowe. That's a pretty big record to break. Um, a few other milestones happened since the last time we spoke. Uh, three of them have Islanders ties. One of them doesn't. So let's start with that one. Uh, congratulations to Milan Lucic playing 1,000 NHL games. Again, I will go back to social media. So you have the Calgary Flames posting about Milan Lucic playing in his 1,000th game. And you still have people calling him a bum. And he's a loser. And he's a goon. And he's this and he's that. And they're doing it in reply to the post that said Milan Lucic played 1,000 NHL games. He played in 1,000 NHL games. It's it's 1,000 games in the hardest league in the world, and he played 1,000 games. And the guy sitting in his basement that loves analytics and loves soy lattes and kale is sitting here calling a guy who played a thousand NHL games and has two Stanley cup rings, a bum. I don't understand that mindset. I mean, I think I do. I think I get it. It's, it's this generation now that grew up with fantasy sports and grew up with like the video hockey where you can make your own teams. So when you make your own team and when you build your fantasy team, you want to try to build four first lines because you don't get points for other aspects of the game. So you don't quite understand what, what non-scorers bring to a hockey team because you think everything is like fantasy hockey. So I get it. And I don't know what what Lucic's Corsi is or his, his Renshaw is or his zone entry or his whatever other stupid analytic that you idiots use. And I say idiot, and I'm not. And listen, if you're calling him a bum, you are an idiot. The dude has played a thousand NHL games. Out of everybody on the list, first of all, whether you played one game, a thousand games, sixteen hundred games, none of those guys are a bum. It's very difficult to play one NHL game. Don't you get it yet? You don't get it. It's amazing to me. But yet you have these geeks. Like I said, they're in their mom's basement with their Leafs jersey on or something or, or whatever, calling this guy a bum. It just doesn't make sense to me. No bum has ever played a 1,000 games in the NHL. You're an idiot. So I am appreciating – and listen, I get it. Everyone has their favorite players and everyone doesn't. Everyone has the players they hate. They hate. I have touched on it numerous times. My Two of my least favorite Islanders, Marius Tchaikovsky and Vladimir Malikov, they're frustrating to me. I'm not going to say they don't have ability. I think Vladimir Malikov, if he gave a shit, 
could could have been a top 10 defenseman all time. That's how much ability I think that guy had. I just don't think he cared. And Tchaikovsky put up some good numbers. Just think about how much better those numbers would have been if he gave a shit. So I'm not saying they're bad players. I just don't think they have any heart. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they suck because they don't. They played in the NHL. Nobody that has ever played in the NHL sucks. I question their work ethic. And, and Malikov is probably the most frustrating guy because you saw flashes of what this guy was capable of, but he just didn't give a shit. Like I always said, if you put Darius Kasparaitis' heart in Vladimir Malikov, you would have had an absolute machine out there. So I know I'm, I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I know I'm critical of certain players, but it's not about their talent. It's about their work ethic. It's about their heart. I think Marius Tchaikovsky and Vladimir Malikov could have been twice the players they were. And in Malikov's case, I think he could have been an all-timer. But they have talent. They're just frustrating to me because they didn't give a shit. Or it at least appeared that they didn't give a shit. But Milan Lucic played a 1,000 games. He's not a bum. If you think he's a bum, then you're a bum. So congratulations to Milan Lucic on playing his 1,000th NHL game. Also, congratulations to former Islander Brett Gallant, who played his 400th AHL game last week. Uh, Majority of those games were with Bridgeport. And uh, I don't know if I've ever really said it, but uh, Brett Gallant is uh, on my minor league enforcer, Mount Rushmore. Absolutely 100%. You watch, dude, dudes and dudettes, go down that Brett Gallant rabbit, rabbit hole and watch his fights. I mean, holy shit. This dude, this guy is tough, man. I really wish he would have got a longer look with the Islanders, but uh, I have Galley in my uh, on my Mount Rushmore for um, minor league enforcers. So congratulations to Brett on his 400th AHL game. Uh, Seth Helgeson, current Sound Tiger captain, played his 500th pro game uh, last week. And I think some of the – well, I know some of those – I, th- I think he's played maybe a good amount. He played with New Jersey. I, I – Part of me wants to say he played about a hundred games with New Jersey. I could be wrong, and I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to stymie this role that I'm on right now. I don't want to interrupt you by going to hockey DB. But uh, Seth did get in a bunch of games with the Devils. Played his 500th pro game uh, last week. So congratulations to the captain, Seth Helgeson. And last night, uh, Zdeno Chara uh, played in his 1600th NHL game. Uh, I think there's only a handful of guys, definitely a handful of defensemen who played more than that. There, there really can only be a handful of guys who's played, who have played more than that. And I don't think he's, I don't think he's retiring. I think he's coming back next year. Why wouldn't he? He still looks pretty good. So uh, congrats to Galley. Congrats to Seth Helgeson. Congrats to Milan Lucic. Congrats to Big Z on all your milestones. Uh, Well-deserved gentlemen. Uh, And one final thing. I don't watch UFC too much anymore. Well, I don't watch MMA too much anymore, but it was hard to uh, miss the gruesome injury sustained by Chris Weidman last night. Um, a horrible, horrible. He broke his leg, similar to uh, what happened to Anderson Silva when he fought Chris. Uh, just, you know, hor- gruesome injury, shades of uh, the Joe Theismann in- injury. Um I've run into Chris a bunch of times here on the island. Really, really good dude. Uh, easy guy to root for. Just just a solid human. Good family man. Um, and to see to see the injury, um, if, if you're squeamish, you might not want to watch it. But, uh, I mean, that could be a career ender. Um, 
I just hope he's okay. I know. I mean, it's a broken leg. I'm sure he's going to be okay, but there's always psychological damage that goes with that too. So um, I just want to send all the best out to uh, to Long Island uh, legend Chris Weidman. Uh, hopefully, it's a speedy recovery. I know he's got a good support system at home. So uh, so get better, Chris. And uh, finally, I'll just leave you with this. I want you to remember one thing: the only thing dumber than playing a full 60 minutes and having it decided on a three-on-three overtime is to have a shootout decide the outcome of the game. So with that, I'll introduce you to Drew Fada. Everyone, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. Today, is uh, it's a really cool interview for me because it's somebody that uh, I've been a fan of for a while, but I've never actually had the opportunity to speak to. And uh, this will be my first time, so uh, it'll be good to make contact with my guest and also learn a little bit about his career. And uh, I'm also pretty excited because he's a fellow Paisano, and uh, you know I'm always going to promote uh my fellow italian brothers and sisters so uh i want to welcome drew fatta to the show how you doing today drew i'm doing great that's a great introduction thank you oh my pleasure my pleasure so my first question and i ask the same question to everybody um now you were born in the sioux correct sioux saint marie yes so if i had a time machine and i went back to uh the ponds or the rinks of sioux saint marie when you were a little kid who were you when you were out there? And by that, I mean, uh, if you came here to New York or Long Island when I was younger and you saw me playing street hockey, uh, yeah. I was always Clark Gillies. I was always Bob Nystrom. Uh, who was a young Drew Fada at that age? Um, so growing up in Sault Ste. Marie, and we had an outdoor rink actually in our backyard, uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, I was, you know, we started to really grow up and learn hockey, and Pittsburgh Penguins were winning the Stanley Cups in the 91, 92 era. And that's, you know, became, I hopped on the bandwagon back then. And, uh, so I was always Ron Francis or Mario Lemieux because one, Ron is actually from Sault Ste. Marie and two, they were obviously the winning team. So every time I was on the ice, I was always either Ron Francis or Mario Lemieux. Oh, so you, you set the bar a little high for yourself. <laughs> yeah. I kind of went the opposite way. <laughs> who I became, but, uh, yeah. Now, as a kid, um, and even even for some of us down here in the States, we're even aware of this. Um, you played in a pretty big tournament as a kid, and that's the Pee Wee tournament in Quebec. And I think for a, for a young kid in Canada, this seems like a pretty big deal because maybe it's the first time you're traveling to a different province, and I think they make up hockey cards for you guys and everything. So um, can you talk a little bit about that experience? The Pee Wee tournament was... It's it's you know coming from people that I grew up in the United States and then um, obviously people in Canada, the Pee Wee tournament for us was it's not it's it's huge it's it was the biggest tournament that you can be a part of when you're you know uh, ten eleven twelve thirteen years old, but it's a lot bigger for people in the states. Okay, uh, the traveling and stuff like that here in Canada when I was playing I was already on a traveling team when we were 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. So we traveled, you know, 20 hours to, like, you know, Florida, or we went to Indianapolis or Mm. uh, parts of Detroit, and, you know, we went over to, like, Minnesota. We did, obviously, we went over to Quebec, uh, and then, obviously, the Quebec made the major tournament there. But for us, 
to qualify to be in the tournament, we had to play in, you know, five or six other preliminary tournaments just even to get there because the stew is only so big. So we can only play like, you know, the, the pool of kids is like 50 or 60 kids in that age group. So we don't really have like, say a tournament we have to qualify for. We qualify in our city because we're the only people that are there. So we had to qualify for like parts of Northern Ontario. Okay. Yeah, so the the tournament is gigantic and it's huge and it's always like that first big tournament for most kids. But for myself and my brother and my friends that played, uh, we were you know we traveled from you know from a younger age. I got you. Uh, one of the things I, I've always found fascinating, uh, you know, being a fan down here in the states, but but being a fan for a long time is. Um, I think people, if you're not really into the sport too much, you just see the NHL and you don't realize the journey that it takes. And uh, I think for even if you expand a little bit, a lot of people, maybe they talk about major junior, let's say, like OHL, Western Hockey mm-hmm. League. But to me, the the fascinating part are always the different layers it takes before you even get to major junior. Like, for instance, I have a, a stats here that you played for a team, St. Thomas Stars. And yeah. would that be considered, say, double A hockey, double uh, A junior hockey? I wouldn't really know what to com- like what the comparison is for the states, yeah, because of the USA uh, program, mm-hmm. that the hockey program that you guys have. But for us, um, junior, I'll be honest. Like, I, I, I'll be honest. I think I know more yeah. about the levels in Canada than I do down here. So, uh, <laughs> so because my kids don't, my kids don't don't play. So, yeah. um, so, and everybody that I know that went through the the junior ranks, it's it's everybody's up in Canada. So I don't don't even worry about equating it to down here. Um, yeah. I think I know more about uh, I think I know more about the the levels in Canada. But a lot of the people that I know are out west. So uh, so I'm not yeah. too familiar with the, with the uh, Ontario levels there. The Ontario when I was growing up, there was Junior A, Junior B, and Junior C, and. Uh, they were kind of all within Ontario, different parts, uh, northern and southern Ontario. Uh, Nassau, we didn't have a junior program. We just had it was Bantam, and then there was the then there was the OHL Greyhounds. Like there was nothing in between. Mm-hmm. So after Bantam, you we didn't have a midget program. We didn't have an older program. So everybody at the age of fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen had to leave and okay. go somewhere. So Junior B was kind of like that next stepping stone and there was a bunch of people that left we were 14 years old and all of a sudden my you know five closest friends that we were all hanging out with we all went to five different cities so i I grew up with chris thorburn uh he went to elliott lake i grew up with cole jarrett he also played for bridgeport Mm -hmm. and he went to cambridge and then i went to st thomas and there was a couple other guys that went to different cities. So it was kind of like this weird kind of gap in between. But now uh, there's a junior A program here in, in Sioux. So everybody, can, the kids can stay home a lot longer. Now, do you think that you had an advantage? Because uh, for those who don't know, Drew has an older brother, uh, Rico, who played in the NHL, unfortunately played for the, I mean, good for him, he played for the Rangers, but we don't like <laughs> yeah. the Rangers here. Um, but he's a few years older than you. And uh, because you saw the different uh, maybe the journey that he had to take, like you say, at that time there weren't uh, programs at home, and I'm sure he left home the same thing you did. Not not necessarily an advantage, but you kind of knew what to expect if this is the path he wanted to take. Yeah, it was 
it was a tough one. Like there was like university was always like a role for me. And then I wanted to go into university. I wanted to play in the OHL. I wanted to do all these different things, but I didn't know really what I was going to do. So when I started playing junior B and then I started playing junior A the following year in Toronto, uh, I was like, no way I'm going to play another four years of this. Like I can't play for, I'm not going to become better if I keep playing at this level. So the OHL was like the next step right after that. And then with Rico being away, it was, it was just sort of like, that's just what you did. It wasn't even, you know, he didn't really have any of their options back then. Now there's a lot more options and you can stay home and you can do what you got to do and you can go to school later or there's uh, you know, you can go over to Europe even for a year. But now when I was growing up there, I didn't have that. I had junior, it was either go play junior B and St. Thomas and then junior A in Toronto, or I don't play hockey anymore. <laughs> wow. And that was it. So I was like, okay, well, see you later, mom. See you later, dad. <laughs> now, um, you were drafted. Uh, you keep mentioning Toronto, so that's St. Mike's majors. Um, did you expect to be drafted? I, what kind of uh, what kind of a player were you? I'm assuming that you know you were always a, a rugged player. You did put up some decent point totals when you got a chance to play, especially for a defenseman. But mm-hmm. uh, what kind of kid were you at that point, And did you expect to get drafted into the OHL? Yeah, that was always uh, my goal. Was always to like play pro hockey, and you know, getting drafted into the OHL was just like that next you know step for me. It was a huge day for me i was you know i got drafted and it was a nice little celebration with the family and stuff uh and then it was a kind of a obviously a culture change for me when i you know went into a different i was you're nervous because you're sitting there and all of a sudden you you dominate this league and you feel comfortable doing stuff and then you go from this offensive defenseman and then all of a sudden you're like okay i, I there's other people that are that are better and older than me. So they're playing the offensive role. Like I played with Mark Popovic, who obviously was an offensive defenseman throughout his whole career. Mm-hmm. And he was better than I was offensively. So like when I came into that, uh, I had to like learn quickly. Okay. Well, like if I'm going to play, then I got to make sure no one's going to score when I'm on the ice. And then my game just kind of progressed into this, you know, stay at home D man. And then the fighting just kind of, you know, progressed along with that. Now, your, your kid was there, you know, obviously even at any age you can get your hopes up for certain things. But I think as a kid, you also it's always like that pie-in-the-sky type thing. Were you hoping to get drafted by Sault Marie? Uh, yes and no. Yeah, I, would, I would love to have been home and, you know, play in front of my family and my friends and that kind of thing. But I was also just a kid who wanted to get away and, see what life was like outside of, you know, outside of my parents' house and stuff. And then, you know, it's just like you, you have this opportunity to go somewhere and then all of a sudden you don't have the, you know, the parental guidance of like saying, okay, well, don't go out on this night, you know, don't make sure you're home at a certain time. And you wanted that freedom just to be a kid or no, you wanted that freedom to like uh, become an adult really. Cause like you're, you know, you're just a dumb kid and you have no idea what you're doing, but you have that opportunity to take off and it was exciting. It was sad, obviously when I left and my, you know, my parents were driving down the road and, you know, a couple of tears are going yeah. down your face. But in the end, it was just like something that was, I was excited for because it was just like this new chapter. I had no idea what was going to happen. And then, you know, it's, you're 
just a young, hardy little kid. And you're like, I'm going to meet girls and I'm going to go out and, you know, that kind of stuff. It was fun. And and uh, maybe in a in a way it was beneficial getting drafted by uh, St. Mike's because you came from and, – and everything's relative. I mean, I'm here in New York, so I don't know how big of a town Sault Ste. Marie actually is, but – it's obviously smaller than Toronto. So you're going from, <laughs> yeah, yeah. from this little town to yeah. a big city in Toronto. And maybe it was better to go to Toronto than say another small Canadian town. It, it, you wouldn't have the, uh, the parental aspect of it. Obviously you have billets, but uh, you're going from a small town to the big city and maybe that helped you grow also. Oh, of course. Like you go from a city of 60,000 people to uh, 5 million. It's like, yeah. it's a big difference. And then all of a sudden Toronto's Toronto and it's not obviously not like New York or Long Island. It's not kind of not incomparable, but you get into a place and all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, I don't have a, I don't have a car. Cause I had a car when I was younger in the Sioux mm-hmm. because it's the Sioux and yeah. <laughs> it takes you four minutes to get anywhere in this town. And, uh, you know, if you have to go more than 15 minutes, that's like, oh, that's too far. I'm not going there. <laughs> And then all of a sudden I have to hop on to a subway and travel an hour and a half, two hours every day just to get to school or just to get to practice. So it was definitely a huge culture shock. And you, you know, you definitely, you go from being an idiot kid to an idiot adult pretty quickly. Yeah. And sometimes that never, you never shake that. I'm 50. I'm still an idiot adult. So, uh, (laughs) so that doesn't really ever go away. Just so you know, I know you're younger than me, but don't expect that to leave. No, I kind of don't want it to go away. Yeah. No, yeah, it's great. I yeah, it's I, I tell, a grumpy old man soon. Well, you know what? And let me just let me give you some advice on that. I've been called a grumpy old man. I think I get called that every day by my wife and my kids. But <laughs> you embrace it because when you get to that point, you know that you're always right. Yeah. You know that you're always right, and uh, yeah, you know, embrace it. It's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, so you ended up playing for the St. Mike's buzzer. So is that uh junior a, is that sort of like the, uh, I want for lack of a better term, the farm team for the majors? Uh, well, no, not really. So the year that I got drafted into the OHL mm-hmm. is the year that they amalgamated, amalgamated, something like that. Um, the age groups, because mm-hmm. if you were born, after September 15th, you were considered the next year's draft. So if you were born in, say, September 15th, 1983, you were actually going to get drafted with the 84s. Okay. And so my year was the year that they put all the draft years together. So I had, I'm an 83, and I got drafted with all the 83s, all the 82s, and all all the late 82s, and everything. So then the following year, it's only 84s that get drafted, and it's only 85s so okay. all, all the way through. So when I got drafted, I actually was on, like, the, the, the bottom half of the draft where I wasn't actually eligible to play in the OHL that year okay. because of how the draft went. So as a 16-year-old, I wasn't able to play. So then I had to find a place to play and they wanted me to play in Toronto because then I was closer to, you know, the Toronto majors and they played out of the same rink and I would have the same billets for the, you know, continuation of my career in Toronto. So I had to play that one year of junior when I was 16 because of the draft that was my, my, my OHL draft year. 
Oh, okay. And it looks like you had a pretty good season. I mean, obviously you can only tell so much from the numbers, but 49 games, 27 points, and um, 144 penalty minutes. Is this maybe where the physical play started for you? That, it probably did because in Junior B, the, fall, the year before that, if you got into a fight, you were you you weren't able to play the rest of the game, and you also got suspended for one game the next game. Okay. So that's how the fighting was. So then, when I went to Tier Two Junior A, it was like just a five minute penalty. So the fighting became a little bit more consi- uh, consistent because you were able to, and you were able to just go sit in the box for five minutes and you'd be fine. Gotcha. Um, so the next year you make the jump to the OHL. And uh, so now, at least now, I have some sort of uh, specific questions I can ask you. First mm-hmm. question, uh, you played with a, a guy who also spent a little bit of time here on the Islanders, spent a little bit of time in Bridgeport. He's quite the character. Uh, I'm, I hope to have him on at some point, and that's Booter, Daryl Bootland. Uh, what are your impressions of uh, Booter? I love Booter. Yeah. Booter's, Booter's, you know, Booter's that like 1% of, you, you only come across the type of guys and the type of players like Booter like once in a lifetime and fortunately for Booter he's been around for a very long time so he's able to like cover that ground of that like one percent kind of player and kind of person um but the guy never came to the rink without a smile on his face he never had a day where like he didn't crack a joke or like make someone laugh and then he would put the puck in the net every single game and then you know crack a joke about taking a shit in the lobby or something you know it's like <laughs> it's, that's just the way booter was mm-hmm. and uh if you have a chance to get booter on your show it would uh it would probably boost ratings or definitely a lot more people or stuff like that because uh he's he's a character and he's another guy something you guys have in common older brother who played uh hockey before him pro hockey and everything so mm-hmm. you guys had that in common also yeah, Buddha was a little bit older than I was. Mm-hmm. So when I was coming in as a 17-year-old, he was a late 19. Okay. So he was turning 20 that year. Uh, I only had a chance to play with Buddha for one year mm-hmm. in uh, St. Uh, Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then we actually crossed paths again in, uh, in Bridgeport mm-hmm. for about half a season before he got traded to Portland. Portland, yep. That one. Yeah. So it was uh, it was short lived, but very memorable. So a couple of uh, incidents from that year in uh, in St. Mike's. Uh, First one I want to ask you about. uh, You had a fight with a guy named Brody Todd. He played for Kingston. And I think that was uh, you coming to the defense of one of your teammates that he bored someone. Do you remember that? Uh, Probably. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to. uh, Yeah. Most like I never was like. um, like I fought a lot, but everything, every fight was like emotional. It was yeah. always something else. Like I never, uh, never like was looking for like who the toughest guy was or mm-hmm. like, cause when we played against Kingston, uh, Brett Cluche was like the tough guy. Yeah. He was one of the tougher guys in the league, but I was never like, I want to fight Kluch because I want to see, you know, who holds the title and who the toughest guy was. But right. if it ever came to a point where, you know, you know, Kluch hit somebody or say Todd hit somebody, then I would go and fight them uh the todd fights i i can't remember i have no idea i don't even remember that guy's name (laughs) well now listen for the next couple of minutes i'll at least be in your uh stream of consciousness now yeah so um 
This one I have. This is a question that I was very curious about. You fought a guy named uh, Kevin Lavallier, I guess, of Montreal, and that wasn't that was mid-season. Um, the OHL and Quebec League did they cross paths at some point? Did they start doing an in- interleague type thing while you were down in the OHL? They were doing this. Um, I don't even know how to really explain it. It was it was cr- sort of like a crossover, but it was every year. It was one team from the OHL would go and play two games against a Quebec team. And then that team would come and play two games against uh, an Ontario team. Uh, they, we only played two games in that, during that season. Like okay. We went and made that one trip, and then we played the two games. And then we were supposed to play them again that year in Toronto. But uh, I don't even – I can't remember what happened or if they kiboshed the whole thing or – whatever but it was no playoffs it was no you know in-season tournament it was just a random let's you know cross the two leagues over and see what happens and uh it did not work out very well so <laughs> I, I was <laughs> we didn't do that yeah when i saw that i'm like wait this, this doesn't seem right for, I, I had to check the date a bunch of times because obviously i knew it wasn't memorial cup and yeah. uh i didn't know if it was exhibit i'm like this just it didn't I'd never seen that before. This is the first time I'd ever come across that. And obviously, like you say, it didn't go well. Uh, probably, like you say, they may have scrapped it mid-season and they may not have ever approached it again. Yeah, it just never, I don't know if it was just, it was just a bad blood. Like if we, yeah. if the Western League was a little bit closer, we obviously would have had a, a crossover with uh, the Western League. But it's just, you know, you're just, uh, you're taking two different teams, you're putting them together you took two teams that were average and late, you know, the penalty minutes between the, us and the other team was that we weren't fighting teams, right. but then all of a sudden you put us together and you play against each other and we were just, everybody wanted to fight everybody. So I remember I actually had a broken, I had a broken knuckle um, and I had like my hand was all taped up and stuff, but then things were getting out of hand. And then I went to a trainer and I'm like, you got to, cause if you have tape on your hands, obviously you're going to get like a 10 game suspension. Right. Mm-hmm. So then I said, okay, well, you got to take my tape off because I'm going to go fight that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I I, I think, listen, that for, for as much as the way society is nowadays and everything is so gentle and soft and all this other stuff, the the fact is you're an OHL or you have pride in your league. And now you're going to play the Quebec league who you don't necessarily hate, but of course you think you're better than, and they feel the same (laughs) way about you. You got, of course, there's going to always be animosity. So I don't know if they, I don't know what they expected to be honest with you. Yeah, so. it didn't, it didn't go well and they don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we were that last kind of, uh, you know, crossover game, mm-hmm. but it's just anything, right? It doesn't have to be the French people. It doesn't have to be the Ontario guys. It doesn't have to be the Western guys. Even if we played, you know, United States guys or like yeah. Finnish guys or whatever it was, it wouldn't have, it just you're taking teenagers with uh, you know bad attitudes and putting them together. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, usually it's the people making the decisions in the big buildings that really have no clue what's going on anyway. So, no, of course. Um, all right. So you had mentioned a lot of times in your fights it was emotional and everything. So I'm hoping you remember this one. Apparently, uh, if what I read is correct, there was a, a gentleman named Alex Butkus of Barry uh, who you fought that year, and uh, did you leave the bench to fight him? um sorry well yes and no so what happened was uh i was i was going to change and actually um, it was actually uh popper we've had 
Mark Popovic. He was coming off, and I was supposed to change for Popovic. But Butkus ended up hitting one of our guys. Uh, you know, not like it was a it was a it was a hit that warranted like me to kind of step up and go and hit him mm-hmm. or go and fight him. And then as I jumped onto the ice, I we started fighting within seconds because like he made the hit, he sees me, he's like, okay, now I got to fight, and we fought. But Popovic didn't come off the ice. Oh, he stood at the bench and watched the watched the fight happen. So then when I went to the penalty box. The ref's like, you're out of here. You jumped the bench. And I was like, what are you fucking talking about? I have no idea. I'm like, I'm like I've, you know, I'm, no, I'm not sure what's happening. So then I get off and then uh, I go into the dressing room. Obviously, I got suspended. And then uh, I end up getting six games. I got three games suspension um, from the league. And then I got another three games added to it because then they because I jumped the bench. And I was just like, this is awesome. So I got suspended for six games. Because Popovic didn't want to come off the ice. <laughs> he screwed you. <laughs> of course he did. Fucking Popovic. <laughs> so so that summer was a pretty big summer for you. Uh, you ended up getting drafted to Pittsburgh, which now that I know that was your team, um, that must have been a, a massive thrill to hear your name called by the Penguins. Yeah, that was that was a huge day for me and for my family. It's uh, obviously one of the, the better days of my life. Uh, I remember in the, cause you go through these interviews, right. And then I was ranked in the top hundred. So I was actually having interviews with every single team. And this was a week or two weeks before, um, the, the draft actually happened. And then I was actually rooming with, uh, Mike Camilleri and Jason Spezza. And those guys were ranked in like the top five. So they were like, you know, who do you, they were having discussion like, who, oh, who's your interview? Who you got to go with? And then Spets is like, yeah, I got two interviews. You know, he's got, he's got, and then he was actually pissed off because Ottawa wanted an interview and he's like, no way I'm going to get, go down the fifth. Like Ottawa doesn't have a chance to even get me. <laughs> and then Cam Larry, same thing. He had like four or five little interviews and they're like, Fats, what do you got? And I'm like, boys, I got fucking 28. <laughs> like, the hell am I supposed to do here? And I remember the interview with Pittsburgh um, was, I actually mentioned, I was like, you know what, one of my favorite teams growing up was uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins because of, you know, Ron Francis. And then as a younger kid and the best team at the time when I started to understand the game was Pittsburgh and they were winning Stanley Cups and stuff. And uh, I think that was the one that kind of sealed the deal. And then when uh, a third round came around, they they threw my name out there. Very cool. Now, uh, because you said you interviewed with uh, all the other teams, uh, did you have any interview with the Islanders and uh, Mike Milbury? I didn't have an interview with the Islanders. Okay. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get to meet Milbury. I've actually never had a chance to meet Milbury. Good for but you. I remember having an interview with Columbus, okay. and they made you do this like psychological test, mm-hmm. and it's like you, they put you into this different room. So like, I'm interviewing with all the general managers and the head scouts, and there's like four or five guys there, and it's later in the day, and these guys are all laughing and smoking cigars and having a good time. And there's like bottles of booze that are open in the side and they're just like, you know, going along with it. And here I am just this like 17, 18 year old kid. I haven't turned 18 yet. And I'm like, man, these guys are fucking drunk. <laughs> like I have no idea what's happening. And they're like, okay, well, you know, we like you, blah, blah, blah. You know, later rounds, if it comes to it, we might, you know, we might take you. He's like, but right now I want you to have a little bit of fun. 
don't do anything stupid like take your pants off and go have an interview in the in the following like adjacent room and the hotel rooms or the you know the two doors kind of yeah. uh, match up yeah and then uh, I'm like oh okay no okay whatever the hell this is mm-hmm. and then I walk into the room and there is this six foot gorgeous blonde woman in this like tight uh, pantsuit blouse thing and. I was like, you're my interviewer? I'm like, I have no idea. And look, these guys are all drunk. And I'm like, man, is this like a joke? Am I like, is she going to like hit on me? And I have to like deny her because, you know, whatever's happening over here. I have no idea. But I remember, and then she started like being very professional. And I was like, oh, this is real. I'm like, you're a real person. You're a, you're, you're, you're a psychologist. You're like, you're going to actually test me right now. And it took me a while to get into it. And, uh, I remember a couple of years later, I ran into the general manager. He wasn't general manager at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, I was talking about like I remember that that the woman she was she was gorgeous. I'm like, how did you guys hire? Her? And uh, they're just like, because she was gorgeous. That's why we yeah. hired. Her. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a perfect test for a 17, 18 year old young man. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> um, so did you go to camp with Pittsburgh uh, that fall? Did you get to go to camp? Yeah, I went. Uh, I went for two camps, and then I then I signed. I went that year, and then uh, two full camps, and then uh, I signed an entry level deal. And so I went to five total camps with Pittsburgh before I moved on to New York. Now that camp, that was the season I think that Mario had. Uh, he came back. He didn't play. Yeah. I think he played the home games or whatever it was. Um, but now here's a guy that you grew up idolizing. And now are you actually in training camps, not necessarily skating with Mario Lemieux on a line, but are you on the same ice surface as Mario Lemieux? Yeah, we were my third, my third year in camp. Uh, so my first year, like, uh, you know, my, uh, being at the, uh, being at the Pittsburgh camp and he was his first full season because he, the year before he actually came back like halfway through the season. And then the following year was like a full camp, full everything. And I remember my first drill was a D to D breakout, hit the, hit the winger, come back, regroup D to D hit the centerman. And I was on the second part. So I hit this, hit the centerman <laughs> and it was Lemieux coming through. And I was so nervous and I was like, Oh my God, I'm like, I'm like, I got to make this pass. And then I fucking threw a grenade, like right into his, <laughs> right into his skates. And I was like, Oh my God, I got to get off the ice. I got to go hide somewhere. Like this is awful. <laughs> oh, so that first camp you went to, and I'm going to ask you about a few guys because obviously the way this show is, and, and there are three guys who are known to be characters, um did you uh, there's three guys i want to know if you had any not necessarily run-ins i mean if you had run-ins that's fine but uh christoph oliwa i guess was the resident enforcer at the time uh a person who's very popular here who i love darius kasparitis um and then billy tibbets i believe was also in camp that first year when you were there uh any memories of those three guys yeah christoph was a huge tough individual and that was I was coming into my camp and there was they, they every every camp they're always like, you know, I want you guys to have fun, I want you guys to work hard, no fighting. Right. So I was like, okay, that's fine. Cause you don't like these guys become your teammates and then you have to fight, you know, it's I'm like, okay, whatever, I don't care. Um Christoph was running around and hitting guys and because that's his job. That's right. like what else is he really gonna do? And he ended up hitting 
Ross Lupuschuk mm-hmm. pretty hard. And I would like think to myself, I'm like, okay, I gotta if if this was a game, I would have I would have stepped in, I would have fought him. Yes, he would have killed me. <laughs> and but it's just one of those things where like, okay, I would have I would have done it. And he I cross checked him. And then everybody was like, okay, obviously not going to fight. And then he was like, what the fuck are you going to do? And then I didn't say anything because I was kind of intimidated. And I was like, this guy's going to eat me for breakfast. <laughs> so the, the, we all stayed on the ice. And then uh, it was in the offensive zone. And then, uh, you know, they won the faceoff and it started coming up the ice. They were coming down on us, 2-1-2. Two, two, and Kristoff had the puck on the, on the opposite side. And he cut across the top of the blue line in the trolley tracks into my side. And I was just like, I'm going to fucking lay this guy out. <laughs> so sure enough, head down, coming dang, I caught him square in the chest. And he, like, he got like, like got the wind knocked out of him and he was like out. Wow. And I'm like, I was like, I got scared. Like, <laughs> I mean, he I has like, to be the biggest human you're face to face with at this point in your career. Correct. Of course. Yeah. And then I knew that no one, there was no fighting. So then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm fine. There's not going to be any fighting. I'm going to be okay with it. And uh, Joey Mullen was actually helping out. And he was our, he was like our bench coach mm-hmm. for like our team black or whatever team we were on that day. Yeah. And he's like, he cracks a smile at me. And I didn't like, I was like, okay, thank you. But I'm, this guy's going to hurt me. <laughs> and so the the rest, he didn't even play. He got knocked out. Like he was done. He didn't even come back. Yeah. And then the next day at camp, um, uh, uh, Mr. Malone, I can't remember Mr. Malone's first name. Uh, his son played for the Penguins. Oh, uh, I think Greg Malone. Yes. Yeah. So he was there and he, he pulled me aside and he's like, he's like, Oli was, I told Oli not to fight you. And I was like, oh, thanks. And like, you know, a little sweat comes off the brow and you're like, okay. And then I'm sitting on the ice in the next game or next like inner squad sc- uh, scrimmage. And we're playing, obviously we're playing against Oliwa again. And I'm like, fuck, I should fight him. Like I should probably step up and fight this guy because, you know, it's take, you know, it's just like, I want to make a mark. I want to do something. Like I want to, I want them to see me. I want to, I want to stay longer in camp. You know, like I, I don't want to go back to junior right away. I want to stay here as long as I could. So then we're in the corner and I'm like, okay, let's go. Puck goes up the wall. And I'm like, I, I back up and I'm like, okay, let, I didn't say anything. I just kind of shook my gloves at him. And, uh, he's just like, I'm not allowed to fight you. Oh, wow. Like, oh, wow. So then I skated off the ice and I don't know if I was relieved, but, I don't know what really happened or what, you know, my, what my reputation was with the organization, mm-hmm. but I actually get, I actually got cut like two days later and I was like, kind of like not pissed off, but I was like, eh, okay, what yeah. do I, what do I got to do to stay here? Mm-hmm. But, and then, um, so that was with Oli and probably a better thing that I didn't fight that guy. Yeah. might have uh, done some damage <laughs> short of my career. <laughs> yeah, pro- maybe he's done that to guys. Yeah. And then uh, with Billy and Tibbets and stuff like that, that was, uh, he was, he's got a lot of stories yep. about how, what he's done and how he's done things. But Tibbetts actually like, was like the nicest guy to me. Mm-hmm. And he drove us around whenever we needed it. 
that was the year that I needed to get set up with like a uh, American bank account. I needed an American social insurance number. I needed, um, to sign my insurance papers. Like I didn't like, I'm just an 18, I'm a 20 year old kid at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I have no idea like how to do any of these things. I don't even know that I had to do these things. And he was actually the one that took me and took me under his wing and like took me to the bank and like took me to the, the uh, government office where I had to get my number. And it was just like, this is crazy. And then I remember saying like, this guy's like one of the nicest guys ever. And then you hear like just mm-hmm. crazy stories about how he like went on to like the opposing bus and yeah. wanted to fight the coach and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, but, and that's the thing I think with Billy and the people that I've spoken to, you know, not necessarily on the show, it's either, or he's the nicest sweetheart or he's just this raving lunatic. There's no in yeah. between, you know? And, uh, but you know, like, it's always like, I'm not, I'm not a guy that wants everyone to trash everybody, you know, like I, I hope people have good experiences with people, but with Billy, it always seems like it's either or, and you're not the first person that's tell me what a great guy he is. So, yeah. Uh, so it's always good to hear. I think if you play with them, it's fine. If you play against them, it's not fine. It's a long night. Yeah. Absolutely. Long. And uh, any any experience with Darius? Uh, no, we we just well, I had like you know, we had, we we sat right beside each other in the locker room that one year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we said three words to each other for in the three weeks that we were there. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I think he asked me for a coffee. That was about it. That sounds about right. Yeah. So um, so you go back to junior now. Is there a, a different kind of mindset now you have one camp and, and no matter how many days you're there for it, but listen, you're out there and you're you're with NHL players. Now you go back down to junior. Not that you have a certain swag to you, but is there a little more confidence going in know, knowing that you skated with some NHL guys and now you're, you're headed back for your second year in the OHL? Well, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's the game of hockey and then and it's just like anything else in life. Like if you don't have a little bit of confidence or a little bit of arrogance to you, then, you know, you're going to get eaten alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can talk about sports. You can talk about running office. You can talk about whatever you want, but definitely that gave me the confidence to like do more and take a little bit more risk and be more aggressive in like all aspects of like playing harder, you know, trying a little bit more offensively fighting certain guys or just, you know, maybe even having a conversation with your coach, like even my first two years in junior, uh, I had Dave Cameron as my coach and I, I maybe, maybe like had two conversations with him in two years. Like I just never, I never talked to him. I never felt comfortable going up to the coach and, you know, asking stuff or, you know, asking any questions really, or having any meetings in in general. And then after I had that first couple camps under my belt and I felt as if like, okay, like, all right, I can take the next step when I'm ready to take the next step. And then I had that more confidence just in life and just as a person really. And it's huge. And it's just like anything that I, you know, I try to raise my kids and I try to do certain things and whatever it is that you do, one, understand what you're doing, have fun with it. And two, it's, it's not a, it's not an insult to be a little bit cocky and a little bit of like an asshole, because if you don't have that edge, then you're going to get fucking, you're going to get eaten alive. You're gonna, people are going to walk all over you. And then once that happens, you're done. You might as well just quit and start over. Absolutely. 
Um, so this year, a second year OHL, you led the team at penalty minutes. You had 28 points, 175 penalty minutes. Now, also, I guess maybe you're a little more established as I went from your fight card, your first year to your second year. It seems like, uh, in terms of guys who progressed onto pro, uh, the names got a little bit bigger. And, uh, unfortunately I haven't seen any of the video on these. So, uh, if any of these stand out to you, not that I'm looking for you to comment on all of them, but I'm just going to throw out some names. If any of them are memorable, just let me know. Um, Chris Newberry, who you had fought the year before, you fought him again. Um, yeah, I think uh, everybody fought that guy. Like yeah, guys. exactly, right? Uh, Cody McCormick, you fought. BJ Crombie, Colt King, and Shane O'Brien. Those are probably the biggest names that you had on your card that uh, that second year. Any of those stand out? I don't think I won any of those fights. <laughs> <laughs> Kinger, Kinger and I are Kinger and I are friends. Well, I actually, I haven't like spoken to Kinger uh, in obviously a couple years. Just mm-hmm. uh, it's a Facebook post of you know happy birthday, right? But Kinger, you know, being a hockey player and you have these in, uh, encounters with people yeah. where you can be best friends with them for like eight nine months. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have any contact with them for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you come back together and it's just like this. It's like you never skipped a beat. Yep. And Kinger is one of those guys. And I remember fighting Kinger. And I, he hit me in the side of the ear with a left. And I was like, I, that's, the hardest, that's the hardest I've ever been punched like, in my life. Yeah. And after I fought Kinger, I was like, I need to either get better <laughs> at fighting or not fight tough, like big heavyweight guys, or I need to learn how to like take a punch. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided, okay, if if I'm going to do this, then I got to learn how to fight. And then after I fought Kinger and then everything just kind of like, it was a lot easier after that. Cause I don't know if you know Colt or seeing Colt. I've seen some of his fights, but I I don't know him. I know he's tough. With a name like Colt King, yeah. like you have to be tight. And he's like, he's, I don't even, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I don't want to be racist. <laughs> yeah, please. But, I don't want to, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but no, I, no, I will say not, this. Even just like, pick headshots of the that, guy, he uh, looks tough. He's like the, you ever hear like the, the stereotype of the, the racism of um, like a big fucking Indian? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, absolutely. That's Kinger, and Kinger's like, he's just like one of the toughest guys out there. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, another big Indian later on in the uh, in the show, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, listen, that, it, it's people that know, it, it, and maybe if you don't know, like, there's a lot of reserves up in Canada, it's just the way yeah. it is, so when you get players, hockey is a big deal up in Canada, you're going to get players from all sorts of nationalities and all sorts of backgrounds, so you do have a lot of people that are going to play, and you know, Indians or Natives or First Nations, whatever the appropriate term is right now, yeah, he Mm -hmm. was, he's a a big kid that hurts people. <laughs> He's a tough guy. So, you know, oh, yeah. but yeah, it's, and it's a shame and, and we don't need to go off on this tangent, but it's a shame that you always have to worry about what you're going to say because everybody knows you're not being insensitive. It's just the way it is. Yeah. You know, like I, it's, I understand what you're saying in this world yeah. that we live in is, you know, I think it might be a different podcast we might get into, but yeah, uh, yeah though everything is, everything's so bland yeah. and mm-hmm. everybody's going to be offended by something. So yeah, you know, you just, it's hard to, you know, always have to like take a step back mm-hmm. and think about your words and how you say it because someone's going to, you know, you're going to get in trouble for something. Yep. Oh, yeah. 
Well, uh, probably the biggest name that you fought that year, though, in terms of Long Island, the notoriety, and, and obviously the numbers that he put up in the NHL and even in the American League are pretty staggering. But in the playoffs, you fought a golden-haired Zenon Kanopka, one of the characters to ever play the sport. Um, yeah. And you actually had two fights that year, another uh, with uh, Daryl Thompson of Barry. Uh, but speaking of the fight with Zen and Kanopka, I, I love Zen and Kanopka. I do. I'm so glad he played for the Islanders. Um, he's always a handful because uh, he's tough. He doesn't ever run out of gas. He's also a, a master of the chirp. Uh, what yeah. was it like playing against him in the OHL? Nobro was a lot of fun. Um, because we were in, he was in Ottawa and obviously I was in Toronto and we were in the same division. So we always had, uh, you know, we played against each other eight times a year for three years straight. And Nopper kind of, the player that he became in the NHL was not the player that he was in the OHL. When he he was in the OHL, he was putting up 150 points. Like he was, you know, he was a bona fide, you know, superstar Mm -hmm. in the OHL. And he was that, old school Wendell Clark playing, you know, hundred points, hundred penalty minutes, 25 fights. And that's the way he played. And then obviously in the NHL, he obviously didn't put up those kind of numbers, but because he was such a tough commodity and mm-hmm. such a tough guy to play against, that's why he lasted for as long as he did. And then I think he like, if I think his last year playing, he set the, he was leading the league every year in fighting. Like, I think he was, like, 25, 30 fights a year, that yep. guy, which was, like, crazy. Like, mm-hmm. if you really think about that. Like, as you get into a fight, you're sore. Like, you're, you literally were in a fight. Like, it's not like, it takes you days, takes you weeks to recuperate. And here's this guy fighting every two, three days. Yep. Getting into it. Like, and then playing against an opera in the OHL was a lot of fun because it was hard-nosed, honest, in front of your face, hockey and then he'd throw a chirp at you and it'd be funny yeah you know what i mean like that kind of just you never you couldn't really say anything back because it was just he's like oh that was a good one (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's really good at that so yeah and then playing against it was awesome like i love i love playing against an opera um just because you knew what you're gonna get like you know he was gonna hit you in the corner you know he was gonna battle and you know that you're probably gonna have to fight the guy and then when it came to the playoffs, obviously, we, I think we fought the, like five seconds into the game. It was just like, we just started. That was like, boom, let's do this. Now, uh, going into the next season, you go back to camp with Pittsburgh. And obviously, you had already mentioned how the first camp didn't end like you had hoped. Like you say, really weren't given any sort of explanation. Uh, but going into the second camp, obviously, the first one you go in, you're sort of this bright-eyed kid. And maybe you don't know what to expect. Because even if you know, Rico tells you, okay, this is how my first camp went, or this is how NHL mm-hmm. camps go. You're still experiencing it for your first time. Maybe there's a lot of butterflies. Um, how was it going into your second camp as opposed to the first one since you already had one under your belt? I was definitely a lot more confident going into it, um, but it was sort of like the same thing. Like I didn't really, I was, there was always, you know, the guys who got drafted first round, and then there's the guys who got drafted first round the year before that, and then there's the guys who get drafted first round the year that you go into your second your second draft your second uh training camp so these guys i was always like pushed aside and i was always like you know i'm you know wait until he's ready or whatever 
Um, but definitely going into camp, you just, it's just like anything else. You're progressing in life. You just want to, you're getting better. You're getting bigger. You're getting stronger. You're getting faster. And you just hope that you can stay longer each, each and every time. And actually my first two camps, uh, I stayed the minimum. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask you, did you stay any longer in this one? (laughs) No, I, I did not. I didn't stay longer until my third, my third camp. Okay. That was it. So, um, well, you head back to Toronto, uh, third year with the majors, and uh, you split this season between uh, Toronto and Kingston. So uh, one guy that I want to ask you about that you played with uh, with Toronto, he's a former Sound Tiger also, was uh, Nathan McIver. Uh, what, any uh, memories of playing with Nate? Well, we only played a short period of time, and I think Nate got hurt that year. Okay. So, And he was a younger kid, mm-hmm. kind of coming up. Yeah. And... Um, I was in university now Okay, going, so I wasn't in high school with those guys. Okay. So I didn't have a chance to hang out with them mm-hmm. like I norm, like I normally do with all the other guys, but Nate was awesome. Yeah. And you know, if you have an opportunity where if, if I want, if I had to go back, I obviously would have spent a lot more time with certain people. And, yeah. uh, Nate was definitely one of those guys. And this was, uh, I'm assuming your first trade, uh, traded from St. Mike's to Kingston, um, you have people that are are professionals in their twenties and thirties that get traded, and they say how it affects them. How did it affect you being traded from St. Mike's to Kingston? I was actually it was it was just called it was a shock for me. Uh, I didn't want to get traded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shane O'Brien was obviously he was a good player, and it would have he was a better player than I was at the time. And well, he's probably still better <laughs> right now. And it was a good opportunity, like that. This Toronto made their team stronger by bringing in uh, O'Brien and shipping me off. Um, but I didn't like it. Actually, I was I was pissed off because I didn't. We were on a winning team, yeah, and we were going to make the playoffs and we were going to do certain things. And I had a life. Uh, I had a life in Toronto. I had my my you know Joe and Sue Sucucci were my billets in Toronto, and I'm still in touch with them to this day. And I had to leave them, and then I had to go go into a different school and go into a different team and a different organization and a different uh, you know a different division and all these different things. And um, I kind of stayed to myself for the first little bit because I was like this this sucks. Like, I don't want, I don't want to fucking be here. I wanted to be in Toronto. And then we go into Kingston where we're losing and they're like struggling to like get points and make the playoffs. And I went from a first place team to, you know, a seventh place team. Right. So I was, uh, it was tough. I didn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a huge fan of that one. Now, did you reach the play with Josh Gratton or was he gone already? No, I didn't play with Josh. Okay. No, I fought Josh, but <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, why, how'd that go? Um, it was an exhibition game. In I probably have it here somewhere. I have it, uh, I have it was an exhibition game. He was in. He was in Phoenix. Okay. And I was in Boston, and we did the split squad game. Um, I don't know. As a normal, it was a good fight. Yeah. You know, Josh, he likes to throw hard, and he likes to throw for a long time. So it was, uh, I can't really, I can't remember the fight actually, Maybe but I remember, really I remember hard. like thinking is like, your head is so big, <laughs> like physically big. It was gigantic. <laughs> so, um, in Kingston, 
there are just a couple names I want to throw out at you that you fought. Maybe you remember, maybe you don't. Of course, you had to fight Chris Newberry again. So you have the you complete the trilogy of Chris Newberry fights one a year with uh, yeah. your OHL years. And then a guy you fought a few times over the course of your career uh, who's done pretty well for himself after the fact, Adam Keefe, who was with Kitchener. And uh, another guy who appears on a lot of people's fight cards, I think it's because of the way he played, was uh, Ben Eager. Oh, yeah. Eags. Mm. Kiefer was he was he's borderline one of the toughest kids i've ever met yeah and we actually got to play with each other in uh san antonio yeah. mm-hmm. and now uh in england my yeah. last year and he's actually the coach now yep. of uh, the belfast giants and i remember fighting keith the first time and i cut him open pretty good and i ended up stopping because i was like ref you got to get in here like this guy's like bleeding pretty bad and then two days later or like a week later we play against each other again and he's like do you want to go and i'm like dude you got like 10 zippers in your face right now <laughs> and so i'm like okay and then i fought him again and then i ended up cutting open again and it was like i didn't i had like i always played hard mm-hmm. but i never had that like killer instinct to like take a guy out right um like guys like gillies guys like gratton uh guys like mcgratton mm-hmm. um you know obviously that the the proberts and the domies in the olden days like those guys had like this killer instinct of like i'm gonna do this like mm-hmm. if you beat me with your fists i'm coming back with a bat and if you beat me with a bat i'm coming back with my skates like mm-hmm. it's just one of those things i never had that and the second time i fought keith I cut him open again, and I remember, like, saying to him, I'm like, do you want to keep going? And then, like, he didn't answer. Right. And then, like, the ref came in, and I was like, this is fucked up. Like, you're, <laughs> like, you're, this is nuts. And I, I remember that. That was, like, the first time where I realized I'm like, okay, I'm tough, but I'm not, like, I'm not, you know, McGratton tough. Like, right. I'm not, like, that echelon you know, Trevor Gillies kind of toughness. Right. But, uh, it was definitely, and then eager was just pure emotional. That guy, he played hard and he played, he played hard Mm -hmm. and that was it. And you just always, he always got in your face and you just always got mad and you always end up fighting him. Now, after, um, after the season's over, you signed with Pittsburgh. So I think uh, they had to sign you, right? Because it was two years, and, and if they didn't sign you, you go back into the draft. But you ended up yeah. signing with them. And uh, this training camp had to be pretty cool because you get to go to training camp with your brother. And uh, yeah. how was that? How was doing training camp with Rico? That was – it was it was good. It was awesome because he wasn't in the training camp before. I was in the training camp. Yep. So, like, he was asking me. He's like, what's going on over here? What am I doing here? Why am I going on that side? And then as he's, if you ever get a chance to meet him or talk to him, he's your stereotypical, like, older brother, Mm -hmm. always looking out for me, always thinks that, you know, he has to do things for me and protect me and, you know, hold my hand along Mm -hmm. the way, that kind of stuff. So it was a nice little uh, change for me because I had to tell him what to do for once. Yeah. (laughs) And. Uh, just to, just to settle it, I'm sure you've been asked this over the years. Who is the better looking brother? Just just so we know. <laughs> well, he's better looking now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I got a couple of scars right, and right. zippers and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know. I think we did pretty good for ourselves growing up. 
Well, plus he played a little fancier than you did, so. Oh, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, chicks, chicks dig scars. That's it. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. So you don't make the Penguins. And this is where I'm going to need your help because mm-hmm. the East Coast Hockey League, you would almost think that nobody ever fought down there. They're, they're record-keeping of fights. It's, uh, it's funny. For a league that built its reputation on physical play, it's almost like they want to totally get away from it. Also, there are so very few articles uh, about the East Coast League, especially back then. Yeah. So um, did you start the year in Wheeling or did you start the year in Wilkes-Barre? I started the year in Wilkes-Barre, okay. and then um, Ross Lupuschuk and uh, Brooks Orpik, mm-hmm. they got sent down from Pittsburgh. Then mm-hmm. so they and obviously they're both defensemen, and they were older, and they were you know obviously better than I was. So then I got sent down to the coast uh, into Wheeling, West Virginia. And have you ever seen that Saturday Night Live skit with uh, Chris Kattan, where there's like a domestic dispute between him and his wife? No. Oh, anyways, you YouTube it. It's, it's hilarious. And it's it's takes place in Wheeling, West Virginia. Okay. And it's pretty stereotypical of what Wheeling, West Virginia is like. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, have a, I have an idea of what it is. I just picture rural pretty much and uh, yeah. country and stuff like that. But um, how long were you? Uh, so I guess my question is now you, you came from a pretty big program in the OHL. I mean, out of all the places to play in the OHL, I don't think it gets better than Toronto. And now you're in, in Wilkes-Barre, one step away from the NHL. Um, was it a little bit of a shock? And, and not in terms of your ego, um, but in terms of now you're going down, you're going down another level below where maybe you kind of figured you'd play in Wilkes-Barre and maybe get a shot with Pittsburgh. Uh, how did, how was that adjustment? And, and, and also add to it, you're not going to a very glamorous place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I remember. So it's like, I got sent down. So I get sent down from Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and I'm in Wilkes-Barre and I'm like, Oh, Wilkes-Barre is not bad. It's an up and coming city. And yeah. you know, it's a brand new rank in the facility and, you know, the showers got like, you know, nice hot, uh, water pressure and, you know, you got a hot tub and the gym and, you know, there's carpet everywhere and you got a new <laughs> stall, you know, and a new bag and his jerseys, you know, they got the nice little, uh, downy in there yeah. and you're like, man, this is fucking awesome. Like, this is like, if this is pro life, like this is, I'm excited. Like I will work my ass off every day. Like, this is awesome. And then when I got sent down to wheeling, I was like, where the fuck am I? Like, what is this? <laughs> Like we had no stalls. We had you had to hop into the shower right away because there was only enough hot water to run for like six guys. Wow. And we had like the one of the coachings I had. Uh, so right just before I was there was uh, Mike Brophy, and the stories that I heard of this guy being a head coach. And I'm like, this guy's my head coach. And I'm thinking like the movie Stop Shot. I'm yeah. like, this is where they fucking shot it. These are, this is where they got this movie from because this is awful. I'm like, this, where's <laughs> Reggie Dunlop? Like, yeah. what is happening right now? And I was, I was just like in awe. Like, I had no idea. And I was only 20 and I can't go out and drink. I can't like have a good time. I can't like get away from it and take it, take the edge off. And I'm like, there's bed bugs in my hotel. Like, this oh, was what? like, this was awful. Yeah. And, it was definitely a culture shock, but we had a great group of guys. Mm-hmm. And like I had Steve Crampton on the team, and um, 
like I'm still in touch with Cramper today. Uh, you know, you, you just, you get to, you learn to love it. You learn to live in a certain way. You learn to like, just adapt to like what's happening. And, uh, you know, we, we had, as long as we had, um, ices to play with and then we had some sticks and skates and stuff like that. It was fine. And everybody was happy. But I remember thinking like, this was a good year. And after the year was finished, I enjoyed it. And I had a smile on my face and it was probably the worst living conditions I've ever had in my life. <laughs> well, for for the three years that you're in wheeling, parts of three years you're in wheeling, I got one yeah. guy I want to ask you about each year. So this year, uh, you played with a guy who actually, um, I think he, he may have played a couple of games in the NHL. I know he was in camp with Tampa, but he played a few games with Bridgeport, and that was Mario LaRock. Do you remember playing with Mario? Yeah. Mario, he did play a few games in the NHL. Yeah. And he played with Tampa. Mm-hmm. And then he made his way down yeah. to us. He mm-hmm. was already NHL game. So uh, Mario was awesome. Yeah. And Mario had the best off-ice experiences than anybody else in the world. And he was like this tall, you know, dark hair, uh, sharp-looking guy. And he had that French accent that just, like, drove the women crazy. <laughs> and every time that we went out, it was always like he had some girl on his arm and uh, I remember just latching on to Mario a few times, being like, as long as the herd of women are around you, I'm like, I'll be fine. <laughs> you get the leftovers. Yeah, of course. Now, how are the games, though? I, I'm guessing um, I just based on geography, I, I would maybe the biggest rival would be um, Johnstown. The Chiefs was a, the Wheeling Johnstown games. Are those games just vicious? Johnstown was vicious because of the rink. Mm-hmm. Um I think they have a new one now, but they had, it's not even like NHL size rink. It was like, you know, like the, behind the net, you couldn't fit a person. You couldn't fit a player back there. Like you could not stand sideways. Like that's how, like there was no room behind the net. And then they had these tiny little glass and the fans would like reach over the glass and like they could touch you. Like that's how (laughs) close they were. Wow. And then the benches on the seats of the of the, uh, the the player bench, you were uh, sitting next to a fan. <laughs> like that's how close it is. Like that's all. So if someone was pissed off at you or whatever, they can like. I remember this little kid. He had to be like eight, nine years old. He asked me if I wanted some popcorn, and it was like I reached over and grabbed and ate some popcorn out of this kid's <laughs> out of this kid's bag because that's how close it was. And the fans were crazy. And um, my first year. You could like you could smoke in the buildings. Oh shit! <laughs> so here you are walking into this fucking building, and these Johnstown fans are just screaming at you, and there's just a herd of smoke everywhere. Wow! And the next year they didn't. Uh, they obviously they banned smoking, and I was just like, oh my god, it was <laughs> it was crazy. And that's why it became such a rivalry because the the arena and the fans made it like something crazy. Now you did spend time. You know, like I said, the three years you're you're here, you're splitting it between uh, Wheeling and uh, Wilkesbury, and mm-hmm. uh, that first year in Wilkesbury, uh, did you reach to play with Steve Webb at all? I know he wasn't down there long, but was Webby down there at all while you were there? Yeah, Webby was with me. Uh, he got sent down halfway through the season, mm-hmm. and you know, I think he was he was on his way out, mm-hmm. and you know, Weber played that hard nose, in your face grinder for so long. Yeah. And you can, you can tell that he was just like, 
all right, I'm done. Like yeah. I can't, like I can't do this anymore. Um, but you know, Weber was that kind of guy where he was older and I was obviously younger and he was in and out of the lineup. I was in and out of the lineup. So every chance that we were not playing together, I would go into the press box and I would like sit next to him and I would just listen to the stories of him, like, you know, grinding it out or fighting certain guys or, you know, certain organization yelling at him or, you know, whatever fight he got into or something like that. So I, it was brief with Weber, but mm-hmm. you know, I was fond memories. Uh, another guy who, uh, again, I don't know cause you were there. I'm sure you were up and down most of the season. Uh, did you play with Reed Simpson at all? Yeah. Simmer. <laughs> Simmer, Simmer is another like like a beauty, like yeah. old school, old school beauty. Um, we had an AHL All Star break, and he like he went to Vegas for for one day, <laughs> like that was just like that's who he was, and he just like came back, and he had this like bombshell blonde, you know, big fake boobs woman with him, and he just like. He loved life. He was just like this guy that just came in and he just loved to have a good time. He would obviously he was like, uh, you know, a huge ear to ear grin all the time. Yeah. And then he'd go on the ice, fight one guy, go in the penalty box, go back, have a beer, go outside, you know, have a dart. Mm-hmm. And then he would just go out and he was awesome. Like Simmer was, Simmer was great. Now you played for uh, Michelle Terry, and now I know a lot of guys who played for him uh, when he was coaching in Fredericton. And to say that some of them are not fans of his, I, I don't know if you've ever listened to Terry Ryan do any interviews, yeah. everything. Uh, so I know Terry real well, and I, I actually that's where I met a lot of those guys. And I know a lot of the guys are not fans of his. Um, what was your experience like with him? Uh, it's pretty much the same as everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) He like, he didn't like me and it doesn't matter what I did or who I fought. Like, I remember, I think it just, he just didn't like me. And then, um, Rob Ray got sent down to Brit, uh, to Binghamton, um, for a conditioning stint. And he's like, go fight him. I was like, (laughs) Okay, I'm like, all right. So I went up to I went up to him and I, I was like, uh, I'm like, Grace, I'm like, Coach said I got to fight you, and he's like, I'm not fighting you. Yeah. And I was like, I'm like, I will get benched if I don't fight you. And he's like, Well, I guess you're getting fucking benched. It's <laughs> like, okay. So then I came off, and then he's, he starts yelling at Terry and starts yelling at me, and I was like, He didn't want to fight. He's like, Well, then you fucking make him fight. <sighs> okay. So I go back out there, we're lined up on the draw, and I'm like, I'm like, Grace, I got to do this, and he's like, I'm not fighting you. So then uh, I tried to fight him. He didn't want to fight, obviously, and uh, I ended up taking a penalty. And then um, I was in the box, and I'm like, "Man, he's gonna fucking tear me apart when I go back." <laughs> and then I didn't. He didn't say anything to me, but I didn't touch the ice the rest of the game. Now, when he was in uh, Fredericton, and uh, I guess uh, Quebec, the uh, I, I guess it was Quebec also. Um, Jerry Fleming was his assistant coach and Jerry is a guy that had everyone's respect. I mean, Jerry's a first class guy and former player. So I think if there was a balance there, it helped that Jerry was the assistant coach because when the the players needed someone that they could actually go to and talk to, they could go to Jerry. Now, Mike had, uh, Mike Yo was the assistant. Uh, did you, how was Mike with the guys or in particular with yourself? Mike was great. Yeah. Um, you know, when they were there, 
they were like, you know, Mike is the head coach and he has a head coach personality. And obviously he was the assistant coach at the time. Yeah. And Tarion's a head coach and he has a head coach personality. Um, they're, and that's why uh, Mike, you know, went on to Minnesota for so long and he was in the NHL for so long as a head coach because that's his personality. Mm-hmm. I was just this young, dumb kid who they didn't really want to like train or like, you know, certain development. They wanted, you know, um, I wasn't really on Mike's radar. Right. I was never on Terrian's radar. I was always that like sixth and seventh defenseman that went in and, you know, I was just a filler during those first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say like Mike was, I, you know, Mike was great. And his knowledge of the game was, was, you know, like the way he did things and stuff like that was unbelievable. But I was never, this is my first couple of years pro. So, you know, they just kind of like worked with the guys that were going to, you know, move them to the next level. Right. And then obviously they were going to, if these guys are going to move to the next level, that means Mike moves to the next level. And that means like Tarion moves to the next level. So I was always just kind of on the outs. And I, I think I had in three years, I think I had maybe two conversations with yo. <laughs> That's about it. Which was fine for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I just I went out there, I did my business and that was fine. And then as I grew and as I got better and as I, you know, matured as a hockey player, the interactions with the coaches and stuff like that kind of grew as I was became better. Like yeah. I was I was just this, you know, a kid. And they didn't want any part of that. Now I don't know who you fought that year with Wheeling, but I do know that you fought PJ Stock with uh, Wilkes-Barre. So I'm going to assume that he might have been the biggest name that you fought your first year pro. And uh, while PJ isn't the biggest guy, similar to Z, his motor never stops and he yeah. just never runs out of gas. Uh, was that uh, like a welcome to professional hockey moment for you? Yeah, I guess. Um, you know, it's just when you get into a fight, it's just if you're scared then you're gonna get fucking knocked out like it's just one of those things so if you have you know a little bit of confidence with you and you trust that you're strong enough to be there then it doesn't really matter who you fight you can fight anybody as long as you know you stick to the basics you keep people in front of you and fucking throw as hard as you can uh when i fought pj uh it was emotional like we were we were battling in the corner and he tried to get come the puck went up to the top of the uh top of the circles and he tried to battle his way to the front of the net and then i stopped him and then we battled and then there was a loose puck in front and then you know we uh ended up hacking each other a couple cross checks here and there to get away and then all of a sudden boom here we go it's a, it's a fight and i don't think it lasted very long mm-hmm. but it was just uh it was just one of those good fights that just kind of was good for everybody. It was good for both teams and everybody got up on their feet and started to start cheering. So you talked about the rivalry with uh, Johnstown and Wheeling, but the good thing in the American league, well, maybe for, you know, definitely for fans, uh, maybe not for a particular players that maybe don't play physical, but uh, the rivalries. And in Wilkes-Barre, I would say the two biggest rivals you had would be uh, the Phantoms and the Hershey Bears. Uh, what were those games like? Did you know they were going to be wars? Even if it didn't necessarily lead to fights, you just knew the environment was, was one that was going to lead to aggressive play. And uh, how was it getting up for those games? Yeah. For me in Wilkes-Barre, it wasn't really, like, I never really had that energy. Like, I was playing fucking five, six minutes a night. Like, I wasn't, uh, so I was a third, depend- I was a third pairing defenseman. 
um, you know, half the time, you know, the eight, nine minute mark of the third period, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even see the ice. So like my mentality and my, you know, energy level wasn't the same as like the guy next to me because they were playing, you know, 18, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So when you get into the role of playing all the time and then the way that I played, it was, you know, emotional. It was like yeah. a pure emotion and, you know, pure rushes and, you know, that just that adrenaline, start, adrenaline starts flowing. And then that's when the game really starts to, you know, the game within a game kind of takes over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my first couple years pro, I never had that okay. uh, just because I just kind of didn't play that much, right. which was, you know, it's a learning curve. And, you know, it, it, it I was able to, you know, progress into the player that I became. But, yeah, definitely those first couple years. I, um, I never had that, like, you know, let's have five cup of coffee because before this game kind of, right. kind of deal. Uh, second year pro in wheeling, um, someone who I love and, um, I, everybody that I've ever asked loves this guy. Uh, do you remember, uh, did you play with Pascal Morenci? Oh yeah. Pasky. Um, so I, same thing. Like I, you, you come in contact with people mm-hmm. and some people stay with you forever. And some people, some people don't Pasky's one of the guys that just, that stay with you. Mm-hmm. And if you ever have a chance, you should have him on your show Yeah. because his life story outside of hockey is like a trial and tribulation of just like, how you go from being at rock bottom and then climbing your way back into this. And I was fortunate enough to be with him or I shouldn't say fortunate enough, but, uh, during his low moments. Okay. And I remember he, like, he asked me to help him out, take him to a certain spot and kind of get his life back together. Okay. And I remember thinking, I'm like, shit, that's a, I didn't even think we were that tight. Like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think we were that close. <laughs> yeah. But, and then I came back with Paskey back in, uh, back in Bridgie. Yep. And, and, uh, you know, it was awesome. Like he's like, if she, he's told his life story, I think he's, um, he's more of a mentor now. Yep. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, I'll let him tell him the story, but it's, uh, it's definitely one to hear. I've made overtures to him about appearing on it and he hasn't said yes and he hasn't said no. So, uh, at some point I'll put, uh, I'll put the hard, uh, hard court press on full court press yeah. on him. And, uh, because I, I, you know, like I, I told you before, uh, we started recording, I'm in the middle of interviewing Trevor Gillies now. And he just, as soon as I mentioned, uh, Pascal's name, it's the same reaction that you did. Like he's just such a guy that everybody loves and everybody roots for. So, um, and I've heard I've heard different things about off ice stuff, but you know I think it's based on what he's doing now. I mean, the word inspiration I don't think is too strong a word for what he's doing, yeah. helping others now. So, so Pascal, if you're listening, see everybody wants you on here, so let's get on here. So well, of course, uh, everybody cheers so, for him because he's so tiny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but he plays like he's ten feet tall. Yeah, I know, and he can play though too. Like yeah. he like, he has like a good set of hands on him. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, if, if you're a fan of the East coast league, I apologize because I couldn't find jack shit about wheeling. So we're going to move on to Wilkes-Barre That's again, okay. the second I, year. I think I went on the internet and deleted all that stuff about wheeling. <laughs> uh, as long as you didn't delete the SNL skit, cause I have to go watch that when we're done recording. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so there are three guys that, uh, and again, because you split time with, with, uh, wheeling and Wilkes-Barre, I never know if you played with these guys or not. Uh, did you play with Ryan Vandenbush that second year? Bushy. Yeah. yeah, I played with Bushy. Um, Bushy was awesome. And, you know, Bushy's just like a, 
you know, um, just a good old American kid, you know, uh, he just loved, he just, you know, it's just Bushy's just a good guy to be around. Yeah. And obviously he was on his way out mm-hmm. and he was that old school in tight fighter. And, you know, he, those little like left jabs that he would always kind of throw. Um, but Bushy was just like one of those guys. And like, uh, I, I haven't spoken to Bushy in a while, just mm-hmm. like through social media and stuff like that. But, uh, definitely, you know, he's another guy too of like, you know, talking from like rags to riches, like that is, that's Bushy's story. Uh, another guy who I think you played with, because he, he was down there most of the season, so I'm sh- I, I'm almost positive he did, uh, spent some time here on the island, and now he's done very well in coaching, is uh, Alain Nazardine. Yeah, Naz. So Naz was like, he was that um, same thing. Like, I was that 20-year-old kid, and he was he was the older captain on our team, and, you know, he was married, and he was having kids at the time, and here I am. I, I, I'm just trying to figure out who would if anybody wants to hook up with me that week. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Naz was great. Naz was, um, he's a solid captain. And now that he's with New Jersey, it was just like, you, you knew that he was going to progress and there's only a matter of time before he's a head coach in the NHL. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, he was the interim coach for Jersey for a while. I was hoping they were going to keep him. Uh, then they hired Ruff. I'm just glad they kept him on as an assistant. But yeah, I mean, he yeah. seems like a, I, he's one of the guys that I met back then uh, with Frederick 10 back when Terry was the coach and everything. And he was always a great guy. So he's someone I always root for. Um, yeah. Another guy you played with, uh, not Islander ties, but he did. Oh, actually, that's not true. I, I make that mistake. He did have a cup of coffee with Bridgeport and that's uh, Mike Scroy. Uh, did you play with him <laughs> at all? <laughs> yeah okay I played a couple different times a couple different teams mm-hmm. um yeah scroy mike scroy scroy i don't even know where to begin <laughs> he's like okay so then there's guys like bootland who are this one percent of players that you you never really get a chance to meet and they leave a lasting impression on you. Mm-hmm. And it's just this positive, you know, laughter that you feel when you think of Booter. Mm-hmm. And if there's an opposite to that, that would be Scroy. So you guys didn't <laughs> see eye to eye. No, we didn't see eye to eye. I wasn't okay. a huge fan. I, he wasn't a huge fan of me. Okay. And you know, it's not like you're going to like everybody that you come yeah. across. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the first day I met him, he tried to sell me a porno tape that he made. Oh. I'm like, no, I'm okay. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, you know, like you say, you know, listen, I, I think anyone that's listening to this has a job or has had jobs where didn't like coworkers. It's just uh, yeah. the way it is, especially in the world of hockey where you're you meet a new group of guys or a, a yeah. good portion group of guys every year, it's going to happen. So, yeah. you know, it well, happens. I remember, and then we were playing, I was in Wilkes-Barre, he was there, and I was like, this, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of him. And then he went to Syracuse mm-hmm. as a call-up, and we are playing. And I was like, all right, this guy talks a lot of shit, and he's an MMA guy and all this bullshit. I'm like, if the game gets out of hand and, you know, it's an opportunity, I'm like, let's, let's fucking, I'm going to fight this guy. Mm-hmm. And then finally we get to an opportunity where I can fight him, and then he fucking says no. I'm like, what? I don't get this. I'm like, I have no idea. I'm not like I'm like uh, the toughest guy in the world here. I'm not like, you know, it's not like you're gonna bleed your reputation by fighting me or something. But, yeah. and then it didn't happen. It was mm-hmm. just like, okay, 
So then I walked away, and that was, that was the last time I ever saw that guy. All right. Um, one guy I want to ask you about that you fought, uh, again, Islander ties, it may or may not be memorable, but of course I am required to ask by the rules I have set forth for myself. Uh, you fought Ray Schultz with the Albany River Rats. Uh, anything, uh, that you remember about that fight? Uh, um, not really. Mm -hmm. Like, I know this is like a fighting, you know, uh, chronicles and stuff like that. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, like all my, like I never, I never lost sleep over a game that I was going to play the next day. Like I, even if I was, you know, when, you know, say Gillies was in Albany mm-hmm. or no, was he in the Albany? Yeah. Um, he was in yeah. Albany. He was in Albany. Mm-hmm. So like, even if we were going to play there, I wasn't like, you know, losing sleep that I'm like, Oh, I got to fight this guy or mm-hmm. like, you know, something's going to happen or, you know, you, you play in, uh, you know, even Schultz. Schultz was super tough, and yeah. it's not like I was sitting there in warm up thinking like, who's this guy I'm going to fight? Mm-hmm. Like my game revolved around, you know, playing against. In the, in the beginning, my first couple of years, I didn't do anything. I mm-hmm. played five, six minutes, and you know, I don't think anybody really cared. But as I grew into, like, say, um, Bridgeport and Binghamton mm-hmm. and uh, uh, San Antonio. Uh, my game and my warm up and my ta- my mentality revolved around, you know, who the top line was and what's their power play like because I'm killing penalties. I'm, you know, playing against the team's top lines and I'm. And if I get into a fight, then chances it was harder for me to get into a fight as I got older because I never I wasn't playing against the third and fourth line as much as I did the previous years. Right. But not to say like I wasn't going to fight these guys or I wasn't going to do certain things. It was just I progressed into a player where I was playing against different 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 lines. Now, one thing I wanted to ask, and I scrolled too fast with my big fat fingers here, <laughs> uh, going into this season, uh, the 0405 season, that was the NHL lockout season. So we, you already discussed the season before how you split. You know, two guys got sent down to Wilkesbury, and then you went yeah. down the Wheeling. Was this an even bigger hill for you to climb to stay with Wilkesbury? Because now you had more guys coming down from Pitt with no NHL season, so you had Pitt sending guys down to Wilkesbury. So did this seem like an even bigger hill to climb to stay with Wilkesbury? Oh, that was huge. Yeah. Uh, that would like for me that would have been a year where like, okay, I'm maturing. I'm 22. Um, you know, I've, I've I've, I was always that like fat little fat Italian guy, and <laughs> I still am. Uh, <laughs> so, like, I got my you know my body fat percentage was down, and um, this was a year that it was like, okay, this is my year. I'm going to start having more responsibility. I'm going to fight more. I'm going to play a lot more. I'm going to maybe penalty kill or you know whatever. I'm going to progress into something. And then the lockout happens, and all of a sudden, I go from sitting say fourth on the depth chart to seventh yeah. because all of a sudden you have Brooks Orpik, you have Ross Lupischak, you have Ryan Whitney and you know, the Chris Letang was supposed to play that year, mm-hmm. but uh, he ended up staying, he ended up staying back and it was like, shit. Now what? Yeah. So you're like, so then it, that was just, I just, I fought a lot that year. <laughs> Cause it was like, what else was I going to do? So as we get into 2005, 2006, um, NHL is back, and you're still with the Penguins organization. So the season after the lockout, did you go – I'm assuming you went back to training camp with the Penguins, correct? 
Yeah, it was a standard. This was my third year with uh, with Pittsburgh. So same thing. Um, you know, went to normal training camp, ready for the season, hoping to you know make a little more of an impact. And now that um, and now again that you say it's your third camp, um, you're going into it now. It's it, you're not a rookie anymore. It's not your second camp anymore. Um, do you have any sort of Obviously, it's a silly question because the goal is to make the Penguins. But uh, based on the history you have so far with the team where um, you're going to camp, then you're going down and you're splitting the seasons, is there any sort of goal that you've set in your mind where uh, I'm sure the last place you want to go that year is Wheeling? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that was definitely – my goal was not to play in Wheeling. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I ended up starting the season in Wheeling that year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. you know, you start the summer off, you finish off the season and we, uh, you know, we finished off playoffs in, uh, the year before and I was able to play in the playoffs that year, which was nice. Yeah. And then when I started training in the summertime in the off season, it was, you know, I was a little bit more mature now and I figured out, okay, I can't, I have to, I was, I always felt as if I was in shape and I always felt I was strong enough to, you know, to start the season off. Uh, but I was like, okay, something's got to change because I think that they, they don't think I'm in shape. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I changed a lot. I changed uh, my workout regimen. Uh, I changed my eating habits. I changed, you know, what I was doing with my friends on the weekends, like when it came to how much booze and mm-hmm. stuff you would do, uh, partying and, you know, and stuff like that. So I kind of, you know, just matured and changed my life. And then at the beginning of training camp, I was like, okay, boom, this is it. I'm coming in. I'm coming in with, you know, 9% body fat on 212 pounds and I'm ready to, to do something. Mm-hmm. And then, um, like you already alluded to it, you started the season <laughs> in wheeling. So how does that discussion go? And I mean, is it just like when, when they tell you you're going down to wheeling, is that just like letting the air out of the balloon? I was, it was pretty, dep- it was, you know, depressed, depressing at the time. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, everybody deals with, you know, now with the whole stigma around mental health and mm-hmm. how people do things and how things are labeled. Right. Uh, my sort of like depression was anger mm-hmm. and I wasn't like, you know, how everybody goes through different parts. You know, I've, whatever day you catch somebody on, they're going to be either a good day or a bad day. Mm-hmm. And I was just angry to be there. And when I was, I got sent down to Wheeling and I started the year off in the coast, I didn't even have like a place to live. I was living in a hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody else was already set up with their, with their housing units. And I was by myself in the hotel all the time. And I just played, like we, I, I got the, we had Glenn Patrick mm-hmm. as our coach and, you know, he just, he said, what do you want out of this at the beginning of the season? What do you want out of this season? And I was like, not to be here. Yeah. I was like, and he's like, he's like, I totally understand that. He's like, you know, thank you for being honest. And he was a super nice guy. He's a super, like, he's a player's coach. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, we had a lot of conversations together, which I didn't have in the previous years, even even go back as far as junior and I didn't really know how to communicate with a coaching staff because I just never communicated with them before. And he was just like, he's like, listen, he's like, you work hard. You're a good teammate. You play well. He's like, you won't be here very long. 
And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, I wasn't. I was there, yeah. what, 20 some odd games? I don't know. 34. 34. Wow, mm-hmm. it's a lot longer than I thought. Um, but yeah, but yet. 10 goals from the point. You had 18 points, and I could tell you were angry at 145 penalty minutes in 34 games. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was trying to get, like, Gordie Howe hat-tricks every single game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you were, even though you only played 34 games, you were second on the team in penalty minutes. And as we've already discussed, the, the East Coast League, uh, you know, they try to pretend that nothing violent happens down there. The only record I have of uh, any fights you had down there was uh, Cole Byers from Trenton. Uh, you ended mm-hmm. up fighting him twice. I don't know if there was anything about that or if there's anything memorable from, from your last year in Wheeling that, uh, you know, kind of on ice stuff that uh, maybe got a little goofy. <laughs> uh not too crazy mm-hmm. uh we had a really good team and we had a lot of it was a younger team and we had a lot of good guys on our team that were just you know come to the rink every day with with ear to ear grins and just was happy to be there mm-hmm. uh i think i was like the only person who didn't really want to be there right. uh but i tried to you know do what i can to be a good teammate because of what Glenn Patrick said. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a, when you're in a locker room with Paul Bizanet, Andy Kyoto, uh, Steve Crampton and Pascal Morenci, like you're just, you're just like impossible not to laugh every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, if anybody's come in contact with any of those guys, like they'll know what I'm talking about. So those guys definitely made my life a lot easier that year. Now, People know uh, Bissonette because of the sure. podcast and everything, um, and he's obviously he's probably not as much of the character on the show as he is in real life because he's he's pretty successful. So you can't think he's goofy like that all the time. He's got to be a pretty smart guy. Um, but it, as far as his persona on the show, is that really what you get in the locker room with him? Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Like mm-hmm. what you see through social media is what you get in real life. And biz has never like he's changed and matured obviously, yeah. but essentially he's still the same person. Like he, I don't think he'll ever grow up. And I remember that uh, Kyoto because he was a draft pick from the Islanders. And I remember, I, I don't remember really seeing him play much, uh, but I remember once he was drafted following his career in the, in the OHL, he was pretty, he was a stud goalie, wasn't he? Yeah, he was he was really good. Yeah. He actually holds a record for the only person to get drafted twice in one se- in one year. <laughs> How did that he, happen? He got drafted. Uh, did he get drafted by the Yankees? <laughs> no, he got drafted. <laughs> I can't remember who the first team was, but they called his name, mm-hmm. and then I I don't I can't remember. I can't remember who the original draftee was. Um, but he got drafted and then they called his name through like the loudspeakers and, you know, welcome, congratulations, Andy Kyoto. And he went down to the table to greet everybody. And they, they were discussing between Andy and another goalie. And that was the debate on the, on the, on the floor. Okay. And when they decided, okay, we're going to go with Kyoto. He, they actually put in the paperwork for the other guy. Oh, no kidding. So then he went down there and he said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I made a huge mistake." And it was just, you know, a big apology. Oh. And then he had to go back into the stands. And then everybody's like, well, "What happened?" He's like, "I didn't get drafted." It's like, oh, long story short, I didn't get drafted. And then he ended up going a couple picks later, or you know, around mm-hmm. later to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. 
and then that's what we played together so it was it was like it's crazy but uh you know he took that in stride wow i wonder if i have it wrong maybe he wasn't drafted by the islanders maybe they were the team that made the mistake maybe i've uh i can't remember what the first team was which around this time would be milbury so it's very possible so uh, now I have to yeah. research that, but I just remember that I could, I could have it. I could have the story 98% right, except for the fact that maybe they were the team that fucked up. So uh, <laughs> I have to look into that now. Maybe. Uh, so uh, similar to the other years, you split the season in Wheeling and, and in Wilkes-Barre. And now this year in Wilkes-Barre, um, one of your teammates is a minor league legend. Um, he pretty much comes up in almost every interview I do because either guys played with him or fought him. And this year you play with Dennis Bonvi. Um, you had 98 penalty minutes in 28 games. Dennis Bonvi put up 431 penalty minutes. Um, <laughs> what is it like playing with, and I know some guys like him, some guys don't, but, uh, how was he as a teammate and what was it like just watching him night after night? Well, bon, uh, Bones was uh, on his way out. Yeah. He he was a little bit older, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think he was creeping up to, uh, I think he had, like, that might have been his last year, or maybe the next year, mm-hmm. was, or maybe two years after that. He, he was, um, so he's definitely older, and he was married and had some kids, and he was always, you know, his uh, extracurricular time outside of the rink was always uh, business-oriented. Mm-hmm. And he loved Wilkes-Barre, so he was everything revolved around, you know, what he was doing there. So he wanted to open up a restaurant, and he was, uh, I think it was like a car wash or something he was doing. He always was dabbling mm-hmm. in these other things. So I never really got to hang out with him and really, like, have a solid conversation with him and get to know him mm-hmm. because we were in two different, you know, I'm a, 22 year old kid and you know he's in uh, pushing on 40 mm-hmm. at the time or close to at least two so he was we were just in different 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 parts of our lives and mm-hmm. plus I was always in and out of the lineup up and down so but you know Bones was very he's just like Biz uh, but a little bit more mature because he's obviously a little bit older mm-hmm. but uh, yeah he's definitely a character to have in the room and then um, second on the team of penalty minutes you just know how much uh, Bonvi means business when the guy that's second still has over 300 minutes and he's over a hundred minutes shy of the leader. And it's someone who's, uh, who's been in the, not so much lately. He hasn't been in the news too much, but uh, he's been pretty prominent um, post-retirement. And uh, I know, you know, some guys are not fans of his and some guys are love him. but uh, what was it like playing with Dan Carcillo? <laughs> Carcy, <laughs> um, you know, he's, it's the same thing. Like when you, it's like all the guys that you talk about. So you got, uh, you know, Biz fought a lot, Carcillo fought a lot, Bonvi fought a lot, Scroy fought a lot, and you just you can't fight people and not ruffle feathers. Mm-hmm. And you can be, uh, you know, Yablonski and uh, Gillies and you know uh, Marasti. Like these are guys that are built a certain way, and you either love it or you hate it. And as a fan, if he's playing on your team, you're, you know, you're that your home team that you're cheering for, like they're the best people in the world. But if he's on the opposite team, they're the worst people in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they live and die by that sword and they, they love it. And that's the, you know, that's just the way it is. And Carsey was like, you know, no, no different. Him yeah. is, uh, we had a guy named Steven Dixon on our team. Like those three guys were like super tight. And, uh, Carsey was another guy who just like, just loved life mm-hmm. and you know now he's gone into a different 
uh, vocation with his life because of, you know, the trauma that he's, he's, he lived and died by that sword. So now he's the traumatic effects of what he's done with his life. He's trying to fix. And I think he's, you know, I, I just, I haven't spoken to him in a long time, but uh, just to see what he's done through the news and through social media, uh, like you got to give him guy credit. Like he's, he's taken this whole, you know, stigma of this whole mental health stuff. And uh, he's just being 100% honest with everything. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's married now and he's got kids and, mm-hmm. you know, things have changed. So um, the Wilkes-Barre makes the playoffs that year. Um, you've been to playing 11 games, 16 penalty minutes. And now the season's over. Now your contract is up, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. how did that conversation go with your agent? Like, did you go, please, I, I've had such a great experience. Please get me back to Pittsburgh. Or how did that go? I bet I would imagine you really didn't want to go back. I I didn't really know the situation of what was happening. Mm. Um, being 22 you're like i just you just you just don't know the ins and outs and politics of of hockey right you don't know it you're just sitting there being like okay i'm gonna go for a workout or like uh, i'm gonna go grab dinner with the boys like it was just you're living day by day hour by hour because that's just what a standard 22 year old does so when i finished my season and we we're doing our exit interviews we had uh, that was a coaching change in Pittsburgh that year. Mm-hmm. So Joey Mullen actually ended up taking over as head coach for us in Wilkes-Barre. Okay. And Terry ended up going to, he took over for, uh, I think it was Eddie Olchuk at the mm-hmm. time. And so when, when Mullen came in and we had our exit interviews, he was sort of a uh, first-year coach kind of mentality. So he wanted to know what he was doing well and what he can produce and do something, you know, what he, we can bring to the table for like following years and how to talk to people and systems and stuff like that. So it was a more of a, an exit meeting that just revolved around how he was doing as a coach per se of what was happening with me. Now, later in my career, I figured out that those conversations mean they're being nice to you. We're not going to sign you. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're cushioning the blow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, you know, it was the same thing. And then I went into the summertime not knowing what I was going to do. And then as everything kind of crept up into the following year, um, things just kind of happened by happenstance where I am signing uh, an American League deal with uh, Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. And only reason I got that is because uh, Dan, oh, my God, what's Dan's last name? the head coach of the of Bridgeport, he's actually from my hometown. Uh, all right. And we actually, like, crossed paths at a, at a, at a Tim Hortons. Dan Marshall. Dan Marshall. Mm-hmm. And we crossed paths at a Tim Hortons. Oh, and, shit. Really? Yeah, and he's just like, you know, I didn't really know who he was, and, you know, he didn't really know who I was. Mm-hmm. But we both looked at each other and be like, oh, I know you. Like, we're, <laughs> hey, you know. And then that's kind of how the conversation happened. And then all of a sudden, he's like, what are you doing next year? And I was like, I don't have a contract right now. I'm just kind of waiting to see. And he's like, I just got the head coaching job for the Bridgeport Sound Tigers. And I was like, oh, no shit. You want to sign me? <laughs> <laughs> That's tremendous. And uh, he's like, uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. He's, what's, what's, you know, what's, how's this work? Mm. And I was like, I have absolutely no idea. And then um, he actually couldn't get me a con. Like, you know, we kept in contact for the, the next couple of weeks. And then uh, he actually only offered me a tryout. Oh, wow. Bridgeport. 
Okay. I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So now uh, I have about two months left until training camp because I didn't go to an NHL camp that year. Mm-hmm. And that essentially gives you an extra month to stay home and train. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have, like, I was training, but I didn't have any ice. Like, I wasn't, like, there was no, like, I couldn't get on the ice anywhere because right. I'm stuck at home training. Mm-hmm. And I was, just, like, an absolute nervous wreck. Yeah. Because I'm, like, here I am, 23. I don't have a job. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what's happening. I'm like, I, I just have my high school diploma. I can't, I've been, I was doing online classes here and there, but not like, I was taking one class a year and they're like bird classes, like just to, <laughs> you know, keep my time busy. Yeah. And, uh, I, luckily enough, I, they offered me a contract and, and I just took it. It was for, I think I was making 40 grand that year. And I was like, okay, I'll take <laughs> it. I mean, let, let's be, I mean, I think if, if we're being honest, um, you weren't a first round pick, but you also weren't an eighth round pick. I mean, a third round pick, you, you, I think it probably gets in your head a little bit and it's not, I don't even think it's an ego thing, but I, I guess at a certain point you're sitting here going, I'm a, I was a third round pick. I'm splitting time between the coast league and the American league and I'm not even getting a sniff. I mean, certain doubt has to creep into your head or, or some like, what the hell's going on here? No. Yeah, it's just like anything else. Like yeah. Really, just things start to formulate and things start to snowball, and uh, you know, you start to question. Okay, now what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Like, or what am I going to do with this? And you're like, okay, well, if I don't play hockey, well, now what the hell am I going to yeah. do? Mm-hmm. And it was tough. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to ride this out. And if this doesn't work, then I will. You know, Europe at the time wasn't even really like on my radar sure and the guys who were going over to play in europe were you know a little bit smaller skilled offensive players and i was offensive but i wasn't like offensive like these guys were so i never thought that a european league would even be like something that i would do like in my future i thought i was just going to stay on the american side and you know play in the american league and play in the coast pretty much, you know, for my whole career. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things change and, you know, things develop and, you know, you mature and you change your game. And thank God, you know, hockey's, I had some rough patches, obviously, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hockey was, it was very, very good to me. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so you signed with Bridgeport, no, and like you said, you didn't go to NHL camp that year, so you did not go to camp with the Islanders, correct? No, not that year. Okay, but I guess you went to – it's not like they signed you the day before the season. You did go to camp with Bridgeport. Yeah, so I was in I was in uh, training camp. I was in American League training camp and all uh, the exhibition games. Mm-hmm. And then I signed the contract, I think it was two days before the home opener. Got you. Um, and this was, uh, you know, in terms of – well, first of all, in terms of numbers, 64 American League games. I mean, it, it, obviously you don't know it at the time, and I guess – Really, you know, with the way that you ended up signing um, and the way that the last few years had gone where you're splitting time between the ECHL and the AHL, um, you don't know it at the time, but I guess you just, and I don't want to say you go in with with a different mentality, but it's obvious the way the year went and you spent the whole year in Bridgeport, which must have been amazing. You had 185 penalty mm-hmm. minutes, which which is pretty big for a guy who split you know, 185 penalty minutes in the American League after the last few years of splitting time. I, I think you were there and, and you were trying to prove a point. 
Well, of course. Yeah. And I, this was the first time in my career that like I had a chance to play mm-hmm. and I was playing, you know, 15 to 20 minutes a game. Yeah. And my defense partner was uh, Rick Barry, like all year. And Rick Barry had a you know a long NHL oh, yeah. career, and then he finished off his career in the American League. And you know Barry was like that perfect, you know, bridge for me to like, you know, change my game and learn how to become a professional and learn how to do things and learn how to continually play a certain way. And uh, I don't think without like without Barry, I don't think. I have the season that I do without him. And then obviously Marshall and, um, and Jack Capuano, they were definitely people that were in my corner. Mm -hmm. And I felt as if like, you know, it was like a two different worlds I was in. I was, I went from Wilkes-Barre where I didn't even know if they knew my name Mm -hmm. to, I go to Bridgeport where these people are like, wanting to talk to me yeah. and want to, you know, develop and, you know, you know, uh, turn me into a player that they wanted me to turn into. And which was a stay at, stay at home, solid, you know, don't get beat one-on-one D man. And I was just like, whatever they were, whatever they told me, I was like, yeah, no problem. You want me to go through that wall? Okay. I will, I will do that. Like I will get there. And I just never had those conversations with coaches before. And I was just, I, it was definitely a lot happier to be there. Uh, you know, I didn't have a problem like waking up and be like, okay, what kind of day is it going to be today? Cause I was just, I could stay at the rink for eight hours and, you know, and be happy with it. Well, one of the reasons why I like doing this show, obviously I want to highlight the career of guys like yourself, but for what you just mentioned, Rick Barry, now Rick Barry, I mean, as far as uh, Rick Barry as a player at the American league level, he's a stud could play yeah. could have spent his whole career in the NHL you know but he's a guy that he plays not much fanfare he just does his job so I think the average fan might look at him and go oh he spent a lot of time in the minors but if you actually know the game I mean Rick Barry he's just a guy that you're happy like I'm always happy to hear a guy like Rick Barry's name because of what he means to a team what he means to the organization as a whole and obviously what he means to to you uh, you know, yeah. like to me, it almost sounds like there wasn't a better mentor for you going into that season than Rick Barry. And I just love hearing stuff like that. Oh, he was great. And I, you know, I have to give credit where credit was due. And, and I don't even think Barry was even trying to do what he did. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of latched onto him and he just allowed that to happen. And it was just kind of like this, you know, partnership, which, which was great. And for me, and he was just, you know, that's just Barry being Barry. Like, he was just like this easygoing, relaxed kind of guy. And, you know, no question was off the books. And no conversation, you know, was uh, any conversation that you wanted to have, you could have with him. And it was it was awesome. And it was just like this full year of me asking questions. <laughs> like all day, every day. <laughs> no, and it's great because you know you know why, like you're saying, it wasn't anything that was planned. It was just it's something that happened organically. And it, it happened that way, I would imagine. And I would love to get Rick on the show um, because when Rick Berry was a young player, he probably had someone in his organizations that kind of took him under their wing. And that's what he knows because he had a good experience with a veteran player, most likely. And then now he's the veteran player and you're this kid coming in. So it probably, it wasn't even something 
something he gave a second thought to. It was probably just in his nature. Yeah. It's just, that's just, that's just Barry being this, like I said, yeah. like, that's just, that's just who he is. It's just, mm-hmm. he was just a good dude to have around. And that's why he lasted for as long as he did in, you know, NHL and American mm-hmm. League, because he was just that guy to have in the locker room. Uh, I would say more recently, that person would have been, say, Chris Thorburn, mm-hmm. who was in St. Louis. And then they, you know, they brought him back up. So his, uh, his son can be, uh, can benefit from the NHLBA packages. And, you know, Thorby was just that, he's just that guy who's just going to mentor younger, younger players. And like to sum up what kind of person Barry was, we had this team meeting and the coach staff went around and said, okay, I just need you to tell me, you know, what you think your strengths are and what you think your weaknesses are. And just keep it simple, keep it strict, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. And then guys were sitting there be like, uh, you know, I want to work on my, my shots or I would, uh, you know, my shot is probably uh, one of the better things, but I want to work on my skating or something like that along those lines or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, Rick Barry just stands there and he was just like, he's like, yeah, I'm just really, really good looking. And uh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> we were just, like we just like out of nowhere like this huge conversation that was so serious and so like professional and then he just dropped this like random you know uh, zoolander quote and everybody was just like okay and we just right from then on i was just like oh my god this guy's my hero i love this guy <laughs> and that stuff is invaluable i mean we're going on and on about rick but yeah. that's invaluable in a room like that because you know, like, especially the American League, you got a lot of young players, and you don't know, like, you're probably, guys are probably sitting there going, oh, shit, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And then you get a guy like Barry that stands up and says that. It just loosens up the room. Everyone gets a laugh, and, you know, yeah. like, to me, guys like him are invaluable. Yeah, they are. Mm. It was awesome. It was a good year for me. Now, two guys you played with, they didn't, they weren't there long. Um, they were there for cups of coffee, uh, but they're kind of character guys. So I don't know if anything stands out. One of them is Jason Goulet and one of them is Lance Galbraith. Anything memorable about playing with either one of those guys? Goulet was pretty, he was quiet, mm-hmm. you know, just a big dude. Uh, I think he was his first couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe even his first year playing pro hockey. And uh, you know, the rumors and stories that I heard about him came after mm-hmm. his career, but, uh, he was just a shy kid when he came in and then, uh, you know, Lance, Lance is Lance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you have a name like Lance, I don't think you, <laughs> <laughs> it's just... and we actually crossed paths over in England, uh, years later where he was playing for a different team. And, uh, it was just, uh, you know, it's just. It was. I think. I think he was only there for like a week, mm. Galbraith, and uh, he left a lasting impression on a lot of people. Okay. <laughs> I guess. All I'm positive. Gonna, all good stuff. I'm gonna have to track him down, I guess, and uh, yeah. find out what the story is. Um, so one thing I noticed when I watched when I watched your fights from from this season, um, you were and and again, I don't want to say you were more aggressive because I, I just happened to be fortunate where a lot of your fights were available from your Bridgeport time as opposed yeah. to the other years. But this season, as I watched some of your fights, you seem to be very aggressive out there. And, um, and obviously you're fighting, so there has to be a certain amount of aggression, but, um, 
again, because I, I had limited video before this season, is that how you always were when you fought or was this something that was different and it could just be because now you finally felt like you had a team behind you, you had coaches behind mm-hmm. you. And uh, is it just a different mindset or is it just that I didn't see too many of your fights before this season? It was, you know, it's a combination of everything really, mm-hmm. um, you know, positive energy, mm-hmm. I guess, if you wanted to label it with something, uh, I was happy to be there. I wanted to be there and to work hard and play hard was pretty easy. Mm-hmm. And when I was playing in junior, uh, I like to throw the body around. I like mm-hmm. to, you know, you know, have a big hit here and there open ice hits. If a guy was coming through the trolley tracks, you know, right across the blue line, I was like, salivating at the mouth i was just like i'm gonna hit this guy it's gonna be great and when i was younger my dad said he's like go ahead play that way but if you're gonna play that way you're gonna have to fight because you can't take out their number one center and not expect someone to stand up for them he's like because you do the same thing he's like someone hits your guy you're gonna have to go fight that guy so the whole concept of like fighting always kind of um, it kind of for it all kind of like came to fruition when I started hitting mm-hmm. and I started playing more aggressively. And once you start playing more aggressively, you know, people get mad. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's just how it is. And uh, uh, I remember there was one time where uh, Hosa got sent down from the Rangers and Marcel Hosa, mm-hmm. not Marion, because Marion's obviously amazing. That, yes. that guy's like, Hall of Famer. Yeah. Um, he came down playing for Hartford, and he was having a good game, and he, he had a lot of confidence because you go from the NHL to the American League, and you feel as if you can, you know, dangle around guys and take a little more chances here and there. And uh, he came across the middle, his head down, and I was like, "You're out. I'm gonna lay you out." And you know, I had to fight someone like I think it was like four seconds like after the hit happened mm-hmm. and it was just that was a lot of my fights that year revolved around being aggressive hitting and then fighting someone because of you know the way I was playing mm-hmm. and you know the, I think the other fights were standing up for a teammate mm-hmm. and you know when you're playing 15 20 minutes a game there's a lot of opportunities to get into a fight <laughs> Well, the good thing about um, Islander Rangers is that their their AHL teams are also close in proximity. And while the rivalry may not be as intense, and when we're talking nowadays, of course, rivalry is in quotes because it's nothing like it used to be. Um, but you endeared yourself to the Bridgeport fans right off the bat. Uh, your first fight with Bridgeport was against Craig Weller uh, of Hartford, and, and you did very well in that one. And I don't know if that was... Uh, as a result of the host thing, or it was a different game because you play Hartford so many times. But um, it was a good job by you endearing yourself to the fans right away. Weller, Weller isn't a heavyweight, but he, he goes, and, uh, and you did pretty well with him in your first fight with Bridgeport. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, I do remember that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, pretty – we were actually – we were playing in Hartford, and we they just scored. Hartford just scored. I think they were they went up 3-1. And we were at the, they just scored, just finished celebrating. Uh, I was on the ice to start the, to start the shift. And so was Weller. And I just was like, okay, I gotta get, gotta get the spark going, gotta get something going. And so I just kind of eased up to him and I was like, well, do you want to, you want to give me one? Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was like, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, this is nice. And then <laughs> it was a very spirited fight because yes. he's, you know, he's, six two and mm-hmm. you know 225 pounds and he's pretty strong and it was a good fight back and forth 
And, you know, there was no, like, there, that's a few and far between kind of fight for me mm-hmm. where there's no kind of emotion involved. It right. was just strictly, like, technical, like, let's, let's you know, let's get at this. Right. And uh, actually, when I, when I, a few years later, when I was in Providence, uh, Wellesley and I played together. Oh, okay. And we became pretty tight because... Mm-hmm. It was just like one of those things where you just had like the mutual admiration for each other. There's already a respect because of the fight that yeah. happened and the way it went down. You can walk yeah. into the locker room and you already fought this guy. Everything was handled. You know, it was cool. And now your yeah. teammates and you already have that built in respect. Yeah. And, and it works when you have a fight like that. Um, <laughs> things kind of the teams like I don't know what it is, but mm-hmm. the adrenaline of the team just kind of gets amped because yeah it doesn't it there's a little bit more like kind of song and dance to it mm-hmm. and there's a it doesn't just like instantly happen at the drop of a hat it's kind of like it formulates and then you you know as you're sitting on the bench as a player you're watching the storyline unfold in front of you and then when the fight happens you get all riled even if even if i lost the fight mm-hmm. it would have riled up our bench and uh you know that's one of the main reasons why hockey can our fighting can't be out of hockey right. because you know, you can change this, you can change the momentum of a game by having a certain type of fight. And the one I had with Wellesley is one of those fights where, you know, they changed momentum. I don't think we won that game, but uh, uh, it was definitely a better game after that. And you bring up wins and losses. And I think, I think the wins and the win and losing, winning and losing in a hockey fight, I think it really just goes, I think children judge that. And by children, I mean, if you're, if you know what, what goes into that, you don't, the wins and losses don't matter. All right. A lot of it is if you're standing up for a teammate or whatever the situation is, I think if you're 10 years old and you're an Islander fan, you you watch an Islander Ranger game and Islander loses, you're like, Oh, Islander lost a fight. Or if, even if you're a grown up and you don't really understand the science behind a hockey fight, you're like, Oh, my guy lost whatever it is. But I think if, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm smarter than everyone else because there's plenty of <laughs> there's plenty of people like me. But I think when you reach a certain level, you understand that if you win, that's that's an added bonus. It's really just showing up and getting your nose dirty. Yeah, and as um, a you know a person who obviously fought a little bit, and the it's kind of like the positive energy that comes from certain types of fights, like. Uh, you know, fights that happen emotionally mm. are uh, good for the people that are w- with on the ice at the time. Mm. So, like, if you have, say, someone gets hit or there's a slash or something or something kind of happens, uh, the teammate next to you, that's the one who's going to be, like, jacked up for the fight for you. Right. The fight with Weller that we explained earlier is a fight that riles up the whole team. And it doesn't matter if you win or lose the positive energy that comes out of it is going to be, it's a win-win. And if I win the fight, the guys on the team are jacked because they're like, yeah, way to go. Let's do this. All right, let's, let's get the, let's get the next goal here. And if you lose the fight, it's always like, you know, fuck these guys. Let's go harder. Let's get one for fats. Cause Mm -hmm. he, you know, he lost the fight and it's, it, it doesn't happen on a scale of like, you know, what you see in the movies mm-hmm. and, you know, the whole dramatic or the, the, uh, the dramatics behind mm-hmm. certain things, but, uh, it's, it happens on a, on a smaller scale and it might 
only change momentum for one shift, but it changes its momentum for one shift. Yeah. Now, uh, similar to Weller, where you fought him and became a teammate later, uh, you didn't have to wait that long to become a, te- become a teammate with this guy. Um, you had a really good fight with Tim Jackman, who was with Manchester at the time, and then next year he became your teammate. So do you remember the fight with Jackman? Um, yeah, that was aggression because I was yep. angry. I wasn't, I was, I wasn't playing well that game. I was just, you know, I had a couple turnovers or like I got beat. Maybe I was a minus already and, uh, we were losing. I wasn't trying to, I was just kind of pissed off that I wasn't playing well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had a little hit at center near center ice and uh, I was just like, let's fucking go. And mm-hmm. uh, we went. And, and then we became teammates the following, yeah. <laughs> the following year, uh, which was kind of funny because uh, I didn't know who he was. Yeah. Like, I didn't know what he looked like. Mm-hmm. And then I think similar to me because then, you know, we're both looking at each other and be like, um, <laughs> I think we fought. Did we fight each other? <laughs> come across. But, you know, Jacko was just like the same sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. you – like, I would always – you know, run my mouth and chirp and stuff like that, but not that much. Yeah. And the guys who run their mouth and chirp a lot mm-hmm. are the ones that, um, I don't really know how to explain it. Like those are the guys that are hit or miss. You either love them or you hate them. Right. And every team that I played on, I was loved and every opposing team hated me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. And the fans hated you too. Oh my God. I had this guy in Albany who got my Jersey and then instead of embroidering, you know, Fata, mm. on, like he bought my New York Islander Jersey. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't an American league Jersey, which mm-hmm. is a lot cheaper. He bought an authentic NHL Jersey and he embroidered Fata sucks <laughs> on it and he would wear it backwards at warm up right against the glass on the end that we would warm up on. And I'm just like, Oh my God, like what's wrong? This guy spent 300 bucks easily just to get this done. And at one time he actually wanted me like, and then uh, the second year Mm -hmm. that I was there, he wanted me uh, to sign it. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And I didn't say anything. I just walked away and I gave him a look because I was like, you're a douchebag. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, that's just the way it was. And, you know, Bridgeport fans were mm-hmm. kind to me and mm-hmm. every other fans were not. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to ask, if this guy's down at the glass in the warm-ups wearing that jersey backwards, obviously the whole team sees it. The other guys in the team must oh, have got yeah. a kick out of it. Oh, I was, they loved it. And uh, <laughs> um, Ben Walter, mm-hmm. uh, he was on our team that year. He actually went as that guy with that jersey <laughs> for Halloween. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, I loved it. It was oh. great. Yeah. Well, speaking of Albany, there was a game uh, where you pretty much dumped Ben Gite, and then Mike Angelides came in to defend him as a good teammate would do, uh, yeah. and then you dropped Angelides. Uh, you remember that whole se- uh, sequence of events? Uh, I think so. I don't think, we, I don't think I got a penalty ma- or a fighting major for that one or today. I don't know. You, I mean, you dropped him pretty good, so maybe. I don't was know. Was that I, that was in that was in Bridgeport? I think, right? I don't remember. I take okay. notes, but apparently not good notes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it's the one that I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. um, then yeah, that was at home. We didn't get a fighting major because of I actually hit him with my glove on, 
And it was the same thing, was bodily in the corner, um, you know, threw what's-his-name to the ground, and Angelitas came in, mm-hmm. and he, like, hesitated. And then I thought he was going to fight me. Right. So I popped him on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he went down. And then I'm, like, waiting for, like, someone else to kind of jump in, and then everybody's yeah. like, oh, uh, no, we're we're okay. We're, <laughs> we're not going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this next that happens question... all the time, though. You know what? Yeah. Fighting is like there's always that like split second mm-hmm. where are you going to do this or are we not going to? Like, are we going to fight or not going to fight? There's always like a hesitation. Right. During my grandfather, who uh, he was a boxer in the Navy for the Canadian Navy, and he told me, he's like, during that split second, you need to be throwing. Mm-hmm. I'm like. That's good advice. <laughs> so instead of like, you know, are we or aren't we? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm already a, I'm already half a second ahead of you. It's <laughs> great advice. Yeah, I guess for for bar fights, I guess. Thanks again to Drew Fatta for his time and for his stories. Uh, that is only part one. Part two will be released next Monday. Again, I thank Drew for his time. I hope you people enjoyed it. And until next week. Stay safe, everybody.